And so now that we've got all that worked out, then I hit record on the video because the, the clever thing that I do, you might have got it. What I do is after I figure all this stuff out, then I hit record and pretend to be a broadcast professional so that those those suckers on BitChute, they don't know about all the errors that occur as I as I begin the stream. And so now that I have all of those things figured out, I play uh, I play the intro music, which has some nice words in it this time. And uh, we'll begin this uh, 20th episode of the first stage of Surreal Politics on July 31st, 2023. If you care about freedom, there's a there's a higher goal involved here. Right. We know that we're putting our lives on the line. I mean, if somebody decides that Chris Cantwell is too uh, dangerous of a guy, then, you know, maybe they'll come up with concoct some reason to take you out. Right. Maybe they're going to, you know, take me out. we got to get rid of this guy. When you get into activism, you know there's a chance. The more visible that you are, the more effective you are, you know there's a chance somebody could do violence to you, whether it's the police or some sort of federal agency or just some crazy lunatic on the streets. You know there's a chance of that happening. So you know your life's on the line is the point I'm making. If you were really concerned about preserving your life for as long as possible, you would probably not speak out. You would probably try to keep your you know, opinions to yourself, try to float through life, keep your head down. We're not doing we're that. We're not doing so that. So we're already putting our lives on the line. That's already done. So I guess what I'm saying is, when it comes down to giving your life, giving your life, giving your life because that's the chance that we're taking. So it means you're willing to do that. If you're willing to give your life for the purpose of human freedom for advancing that, then you have to ask yourself, what do you want to happen after you're gone? You're gone. Because you're the gone. way you behave in that incident is the most important factor. It's the most important factor. Welcome to this 20th episode of the first stage of Surreal Politics. Today is July 31st, 2023 is the current year, and you might have gathered I'm the host of this production here. I actually have a guest today. We haven't done guests on Surreal Politics yet. We do this on the Uncensored production from time to time. But uh, I, I, I think that this guy uh, is probably not going to get me kicked off of the payment process. But it's not, uh, that's not to say that he doesn't earn himself some, uh, some opposition, shall we say. A lot of you don't, uh, you, uh, most of you don't need an introduction to my friend here. He's been in political media far longer than your humble correspondent, and he has earned no shortage of notoriety. For those of you so deprived as to not know Ian Freeman, I look forward to introducing you to this man, without whom you might never have heard of me. It's all his fault, ladies and gentlemen. Had he not put me on broadcast airwaves, the world might have been spared Christopher Cantwell. Uh, born Ian Bernard, Mr. Freeman adopted the moniker turned legal name during his adventures in libertarianism, a school of thought to which he still adheres. A, he founded an open phone talk radio show while still living in the state of Florida, and for a brief period was I was a, a co-host of that nationally syndicated production, which aired on over 200 stations across the United States. That production served in no small part as the uh, inspiration for the format that you today enjoy on Surreal Politics and other Fine Productions by Humble Correspondent. Inspired by activism he saw in this state, Mr. Freeman moved to New Hampshire and joined the Free State Project, a libertarian political migration wherein adherents pledged to commit the maximum possible effort to ensuring the maximum role of government is the protection of person and property. And maximum is really the operative part of that phrase there. Uh, Mr. Freeman uh, has described himself as a voluntarist, and last I checked, 
He would prefer to say that there were no government to speak of and that all human interaction was voluntary, a noble enough goal, whatever its feasibility. In pursuit of this ideal, Mr. Freeman started the Shire Free Church and through this spread the gospel of Bitcoin as a means by which to remove the coercive element of government currency from our economic dealings. For this, he was hunted down by the FBI, hauled before a jury to answer for preposterous allegations of money laundering and tax crimes, and convicted by a jury of his purported peers. At the time of this writing, he faces more than 800 months in a federal prison at a sentencing date imminently before us. Ian Freeman is a very dear friend of mine. He stood by me when it wasn't easy to do, and sometimes when I wasn't a very good friend. And uh, I miss him dearly, and I'm very troubled by what he's going through. But he has a very fascinating history, and... I think he has very important information to share with us, and I'm really looking forward to presenting him to you tonight. And so, without further ado, I do just that. Mr. Ian Freeman, thank you so much for honoring us with your presence, my friend. Chris, that was really kind and really uh, touching. I, I do appreciate that. Thank you. Um, and, and so, by the way, the student has become the master. Your <laughs> show regularly gets way more viewers than Free Talk Live does, uh, at least on the video stream. So congratulations. Well, well, thank you. I, you know, I've uh, I've managed to make something of a name for myself on Odyssey and Rumble so far. I, I think uh, I have yet to have quite the uh, quite the success as you on the FCC regulated commercial airwaves. I, I think that that is. A very remarkable accomplishment, which I which I do intend to probe before the end of the evening. Sure. Um, you know, maybe we'll start. I, 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 I let's not start at the beginning. Let's get out of the way. Um, you have a sentencing hearing coming up where you you're facing over 800 months in a federal prison, right? Uh, according to the what they call the pre-sentence report, uh, which is a big document that the probation comes up with, as I'm sure you're well aware. Uh, through your own political persecution in the federal system, they cook up this big long document, and then they, uh, you know, take in all these different factors into what the potential sentence could be. Of course, the judge can sentence below or above it, but they uh, they say this is the range, and it's uh, 360 months to 700 something months. I don't know, 800 whatever. It's basically like 30 to 70 uh, years. I, I saw I saw the number 840 stands out in my mind, yeah. and and it and it's it, crazy, and it stands out pretty sharply, and so. You know, I uh, I had a pre-sentence report myself. My pre-sentence report said that I was facing 41 to 51 months, mm-hmm. and the prosecution asked for 51. I asked for time served. I got 41. Yeah. Uh, and so my experience tells me that one might be considered fortunate to get the lower end of the guidelines, and I do not think that you would be fortunate at all to get that. And so— Yeah, indeed. Um. It's a crazy uh, number, considering I have absolutely no violent criminal history whatsoever, uh, and that this is essentially a completely nonviolent set of quote-unquote crimes that we're dealing. But there is a little bit of uh, good news, Chris, and that is that uh, there, as of Friday, there was a posting to the PACER system, which is uh, the online website that uh, the federal courts that is searchable, but it's not really free uh, to use. But that is where, you know, they post information about cases as they're being developed. And uh, the judge posted that he intends to drop one of the worst of the charges in this particular case. We don't have the rationale, the order itself 
uh, has not come out for that, but that is in reference to one of the quote-unquote money laundering counts in this ridiculous case. And that is one of the worst because a money laundering count has up to 20 years sentence. There's still another money laundering count that the jury found me guilty of. But one of two is at the very least going to be booted out relatively soon, it seems. Now, I, uh, in my talks with you off the air, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure how intimately you've tried to familiarize yourself with this. Was it your understanding that were you to be sentenced, these two counts would have run concurrent? I have no idea what they would have okay. done. I mean, normally they do concurrency from what I see with, with sentencing, but... For, for know, the listener who know. might not be, you know, of, used to adventures in the criminal justice system, you can, you know, when you, when you have multiple convictions, they can be run concurrent or, uh, or consecutive. That, like, if, right. you're, if you have two charges, you might, you know, and you get sentenced to 10 years on each of them, you might only actually have to serve actual 10 years because you're actually serving time on both charges concurrently. Alternatively, yeah. you could be sentenced to consecutive sentences. Which is a which is another category of problem, um, and so my understanding is, in the in that guidelines calculation that that set an upper limit of eight hundred and forty, the, they're including the the, you know, that twenty would all be years. Consecutive, they're, yeah. they're counting that as a yeah. They're, when they're the pre sentence report is talking about consecutive sentences when they're talking about right. all those months. Okay, so that's very good news. So now we have now removed. You know, two hundred and forty potential months from from that equation, at least it, it sounds like, um, sure. and that's that's very good news indeed. And so, um, why don't we? Uh, well, you know what? We'll just try to start not at the beginning necessarily. I don't need to know, you know, um, all about your uh, uh, childhood or anything. But that's right. I don't remember a lot of it. Let's so. let's There's begin. So much to say. What? What would you say was sort of like what what caused you to take an interest in politics or philosophy or whatever was the precursor to your actual activism? Sure. I grew up uh, with uh, a dad who listened to talk radio. You know, so I was uh, in the Tampa Bay area. I listened to 970 WFLA and I heard, you know, a lot of the talk show hosts, some of whom became quite successful, uh, such as Glenn Beck and uh, Lionel who were both local talk show hosts for a time in Tampa before they, they hit it big uh, with national syndication. And uh, my dad was also a, uh, a technician. He could do repair of like VCRs and stereos and things like that. So he had his own hi-fi repair shop for a time before he got into computers. And so, uh, you know, I was always kind of around tech, like, you know, radio stuff, uh, always interested in that. And got interested in pirate radio at some point as a teenager, just because I, I guess at that point I was already developing, uh, you know, beliefs about freedom and things like that. And I didn't like the idea that the FCC, this arbitrary group of people, uh, would be able to tell me what to do or what uh, you can and can't say or whether or not you can even broadcast at all. And so I, I kind, of, kind of fell in love with pirate radio, did a lot of research on it and ultimately decided that, well, I couldn't do much from my parents' house in that way, but I could start learning about the business of radio, and so I became an intern at the local radio group, which became Clear Channel, which became iHeartMedia eventually, and so on. In, in what year did you uh, start this internship? It would have been 20, uh, sorry, t uh, 1997, I 1997, believe. you started as an intern at a radio station that went on to become Clear Channel and then iHeart. 
Yeah, that's right. And what what were your responsibilities in this internship? Uh, so the general job of the intern at the station would have been to essentially drive the station van down to remote broadcasts that they would have. Most of the time, they would be at uh, like a car dealership. They'd bring a bunch of cars out. It wouldn't even be at the dealership. They'd bring a ton of cars out to like the fair uh, fairgrounds in the county and, uh, you know, set up a tent and give away hot dogs or whatever to people. <laughs> they'd have, you know, a package of ads running on the air, and then they'd bring some jock in from the oldies station or the rock station or whatever, and they'd sit out there for an hour or two and uh, shuck hot dogs to people on the air, and, you know, they'd make a hundred bucks or whatever it was they were getting paid for that. And so the intern's job would be to show up early, set the banners out, you know, hang some banners, uh, park the van in a conspicuous location, set up the broadcast equipment, and then break it all down And once it was all over and done with. And in the course of this, did you have opportunities to interact with the media personalities on that station? Absolutely. It was just me and the jock, and that was it. And, you know, I'm trying to think to what the state of radio was back in 1997. Now, uh, I am, un unlike a lot of our listeners, I am old enough to remember a time when there was no such thing as the Internet. Um, <laughs> there yeah. was such a thing as the Internet in 1997. I don't know that everybody had a broadband cable modem in their house at that point, no. right? It was probably, there was such a thing as Internet, but it was not fully integrated with the media scene was probably an accurate way of... Yeah, I think it, back then, uh, we were probably really impressed to get a real video stream that was over 128 kilobits per second or something like that. Some small, teeny little video uh, would have been amazing. And actually, in uh, where I grew up in west, uh, the west coast of Florida, we actually did have cable modems back, I think, in as early as 1996. It was one of the earliest markets for Comcast uh, with their their cable modem system. So if I've uh, I've actually been off of broadband for some time. Okay, which is nice. And so um, by this point in the history of radio, I guess that we did have like network. You said the ch the channel that you worked for became Clear Channel Communications, then became iHeart. Were they part of like a a radio network or were they an independent radio station? Before Clear Channel bought them, they were an independent radio group called, I think it was New Wave Broadcasting okay. in South Florida. Okay. And were they, uh, you said that you you were, uh, you got to know the jock. This was an, an, you were working for a specific radio show then, or were you working for the channel as like Just the, the station. It was working for the station, so I would have met multiple jocks. They had different jocks from the... Uh, the oldie station, and then there was the rock station, and they had different events that they would go out to. You know, the rock station would be more likely to be at like a Hooters or something like that, <clears throat> or a nightclub or something. So you were so, working. Okay, so this this independent radio group had several radio stations in that general market. Yeah, there were three in the building that I was working out of, and then I think they had a couple more in uh, nearby town. So probably like five or six gotcha. in the area. And uh, were there political talk personalities that you got to know there? No, no, okay. not at all. Uh, we didn't have a real talk station in the cluster. We did have a talk station, but it was essentially just a simulcast of WFLA, which was based in Tampa. So uh, I grew up in Sarasota, Florida, which is about an hour or so south of, of Tampa. So WFLA was the big talk station in the area. I mean, it just dominated every other competitor. And so they had uh, this little 1,000-watt AM station that was simulcasting that station in Sarasota. And so it was essentially it was just a closet 
uh, with some equipment in it. There wasn't even any any real way to do any local content on that station. And so uh, your your interest in radio is is partly from I guess you know you're listening you're 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 learning about politics I guess when you're in the car with your dad and you're you're taking a technical interest in radio at the same time you start working for this independent radio group and you're not um is there is there you and the radio station that you're working for didn't really have political content but did you have an interest in getting into how did you develop from there your interest in getting into political talk uh you know just having listened to talk radio and becoming interested just on my own through my dad's interest in general and being um active politically we both kind of became libertarian at the at the same time thanks to the Harry Brown campaign with the pre- uh, the presidential campaign that he ran in 1996 and 2000 with the Libertarian Party. And so Harry Brown definitely brought me into the liberty movement. And then being a libertarian, listening to what was almost all conservative talk radio, WFLA did have one progressive guy that would, you know, fill in from time to time. And he had like a show on the weekends, but, but all talk radio fit the same format, which was whether you were progressive or conservative on the air, it was, you know, uh, you, you could only call in if the host wanted you to, right? Like if the host was on a specific topic uh, and you, you wanted to call in about something else, you're not getting on the air. If the host doesn't want any op- opposing views, even if it's on topic, then you're not getting on the air, right? So like there was a lot of restrictions and it was very, very hard to uh, you know get on these shows. And so I wanted to, to have something where people could get on the air should they want to express themselves. And that was where Free Talk Live came about. And ultimately that came about on an FM talk station in the very same cluster I worked for that flipped its format. It was a rock and roll radio station for many years. And it then became a FM talk station, which in the business, there's sort of news talk, which is the big one. That's what most talk stations are. And then there's also what they call hot talk in the business as well. And that's more of the, uh, let's call it blue talk or... um, pop culture talk, stuff that's not really as, uh, you know, interesting to those of us who are concerned with world affairs. You know, the uh, hot talk station would be more likely to cover, uh, you know, Britney Spears and who she's dating or some nonsense like that. Uh, but that was the station that we started Free Talk Live on. It was uh, a set of stations that Clear Channel owned in Florida that originated in Orlando, actually, in the mid-1990s called Real Radio. And it was the first really big, successful hot talk station. I believe still exists today. You know how radio stations flip formats all the time. Like, they're constantly changing what they do. They can't figure out what's going to work. This station has been incredibly popular over the years. So Clear Channel said, oh, well, this is working in Orlando. Let's try it in, you know, Sarasota. Let's try it in West Palm Beach. Uh, so they they sort of syndicated that out to different areas in Florida, and uh, and I was basically the only board operator for this for the station. There was no real program director of which to speak. Uh, the the guy who was the officially the program director was the oldies program director, and the oldies station was much larger. That was like a fifty thousand watt station, you know, huge in the marketplace. Uh, and this station was like 4,000 watts and what they call a rim shot in the business, meaning that it wasn't actually in the market. The transmitter itself wasn't in the market. It was like in some little town kind of outside of the area. So the signal didn't even cover the entirety of the city of Sarasota, not the strongest station. So they really, the program director didn't really care about it. 
And uh, I went to them. I said, you know, how about we get a local show on the air here on the weekends? We have zero local content. You know, we can do this. We have the studio. It's it's equipped to do these shows. And uh, and they said yes. So that's how we started Free Talk Live. That's great. And so, you know, it's important to keep in mind, you know, at, at this and what what year was it that, that you did the first airing of the show? 2002, November. 2002. And so, so you had been working at the radio station for like five years by the time that That's this right. comes about. And yeah. so, um, you know, at that time, I don't suppose that uh, you, you were, you didn't have a podcast before that. You hadn't been, had you been tested? Had you were co-hosting other shows? Did you, were you, were you spinning records? Are you doing anything like that? Yeah, I had uh, been, I, don't, I think I was only like an intern for a year before they started paying me to be a, a part-time disc jockey on the rock and roll radio station. So I had had a lot of, you know, airtime under my belt by that point. You know, I had filled in for every shift on the station, including the morning show uh, over the years. So, you know, I, I wasn't some stranger coming to them like, hey, put me on the radio. So you were doing a a morning show on the rock. Now was this like a morning zoo show when you were like you're like, hey, I've got a (laughs) silly joke for you that every other radio station in the country also bought. Are you doing anything like that? No, no, not at all. I mean, and and when I was on the morning show, I wasn't alone. It was with uh, my mentor Bob Garrett at the time. Um, I don't think I ever hosted the morning show by myself and you wouldn't want to anyways, you got to have some sort of banter, some kind of back and forth, but it wasn't like, you know, the, the wildest or zaniest as I, as I recall, but we did have fun. Okay. And, uh, and, and did you have, did you have a catchphrase? <laughs> Not that I can recall. <laughs> okay. No. All right. Um, so that's interesting. So you were, you were spinning records, you sort of fill in for guys from time to time and then you say, Hey, you know. Why don't you give me my own show? And and you and you you pitch the idea for Free Talk Live from the beginning. You you say this is going to be right. an open phone show. We'll take calls from anybody. And yep. they were like, "Wow, wow, wow! That's you're going to have a lot of trouble there, buddy. You got to screen people out. You can't just let anybody on the radio." Yeah, actually, it's interesting you you bring that up because I think after like the first week that we started the show. We got called into the general manager's office with the program director and the GM sitting in there, and they literally went down the list of rules of talk radio. Now, I don't know where this list came from, but I just sat there with a notepad and essentially only wrote down the things that I liked from the list. (laughs) And like, there's rules like you can't let the caller go on for more than two minutes. That was one of the, one of the rules. And you know, there's reasons why these rules were, were created. Another one was you never I, change. I, I imagine you found out the reason for some of those rules the hard way over, over the course of time. Well, I mean, look, I, I'm not going to do any kind of hard and fast rule about that. If a caller is interesting to me, I'm going to keep him on for more than one segment. I don't give a damn. I know. By the way, what are the rules of cursing on surreal politics? Um, we frown upon it. If okay, you, okay. if you, if you let one, now I know you're a broadcast professional yep. and you're probably not going to do it accidentally, but you know, okay. if you were to, if you were to, uh, drop an S bomb or something, I, I would say yep. to you, Ian, I would invite you to join me in the exercise of trying to keep that to a minimum. That's what I tend Fair to enough. do. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, all right, so we'll keep it broadcast friendly. Uh, but anyway, the other, one of the other rules was you never change your opinion. And... <laughs> <laughs> And again, it's just like it's an unreal uh, viewpoint. Uh, it, it was all about the host, and you know that's what the listeners want to listen to. 
And and again, I, I don't disagree with some of the rationale behind the rules, but I basically chucked most of them out and uh, adopted the ones that made the most sense for the show that we were doing. And they didn't do anything else about it. I never heard another word out of uh, management about our show. I don't think they actively listened in any way, shape, or form, which was great because we had the ability to essentially do the show that we wanted to do without anybody breathing down our necks from from what was a pretty big radio corporation, Clear Channel uh, Communications, if not the number one or two largest uh, you know broadcast companies out there. It was very centrally managed, and uh, we were just you know allowed to do whatever we wanted to, which was great. Oh, so this is interesting. So you actually started Free Talk Live on Clear Channel. Yeah, Clear Channel bought uh, that particular radio group in the late 1990s. I don't even know how long I'd been working there before that that happened. Uh, Clear Channel and these other big conglomerates like Cumulus were in a buying frenzy in the late 1990s. And this kind of gets into the industry uh, back background stuff. But uh, essentially, it was what the radio business called consolidation. The FCC, quote unquote, deregulated the industry. Now, that didn't mean that you and I could go and start our own radio station. No, that meant that the big companies that already had a bunch of stations could then get more stations than they were previously allowed because there was a cap on the number of stations that they could own in a marketplace or whatever, and the FCC wiped that out. And so it was like, you know, these companies ended up with literally thousands of stations in their portfolio, and they paid big, big money for them at the time because in the late 1990s, radio was still worth something. It was still, you know, a a very, very viable advertising medium. They had huge listenership, so they paid top dollar for these stations. And then what happened to them, uh, Chris, later on, as you know, radio, while it's still very well listened to, the value of the stations has been plummeting because there's so much competition now from the internet, right? Podcasts and you know, live streamings aren't... Streaming isn't a really a competitor to uh, to radio at this point, but podcasts certainly are. And there's a lot of listening options now that never existed before. And the, the price of stations has been going down. And so what has happened to these big corporations is they've never been able to pay the debt uh, that they incurred to buy all those stations in the 1990s. And they've had to sell off a bunch of their station inventory in order to try to pay down the debt that they owe without filing uh, bankruptcy. So what we're actually seeing now is kind of a reversal of what happened in the 90s where all these mom and pop stations were selling out for top dollar to these you know mega corporations like Clear Channel, which again is now called iHeartMedia. And now we're seeing Cumulus and iHeartMedia, the number one and number two uh, station owners, shedding stations back to you know the individual mom and pop ownership so i think that that's a good sign uh but it may be too little too late to kind of save radio to get it out of these corporate hands anyway that's just a little behind the scenes i i, I certainly appreciate it and i know that there, you know the, the the i will tell you you know i know that the radical agenda audience oh sorry this is not <laughs> This is nothing of the, the sort. I, have, I, I deny <laughs> knowledge of anything to do with the radical agenda. No, on, on the, I know that the uh, Surreal Politics uh, audience has an interest in radio generally, so don't, so don't worry about um, um, well, I'm don't worry about shop talk. Because, yeah. because, you know, I, it's hard to, as well, we're both in our 40s, I think, at this point, uh, as guys in our 40s, it's hard to look at Gen Z or even the younger millennials and say, do these guys really listen to the radio? Like what percentage? I mean, I was just on the phone with a program director of a radio station uh, today, and we were talking about 
you know, this. And he still believes that 90% of America is listening to the radio at some point during the week. And that's what all this, the supposed studies show. But I just, it's hard to believe that somebody who's 23 years old is going to listen to radio at all. I mean, unless they're counting when they're walking around Walmart or, you know, and they're listening to the Walmart radio network or whatever it is that's on, on the speakers. I mean, does that really count as listening? I'm talking about how many young people in the United States over one week's time make a point of tuning in and actually listening to a radio station. I just don't believe I, I, it I think very few young people are yeah. making a point to tune into a radio station. I right. think that there's some likelihood that there are people who are accustomed to listening to a radio station in the car. I, I think that I think that happens. I think yeah. that I think that there's ever fewer people doing that because obviously mm -hmm. now they've got streaming in the car and all and this Bluetooth. stuff. And, yeah. You know. And so there's probably fewer and fewer people. And of course, you know, as you as you're likely to find out, radio's awesome in prison, but they don't have yeah, you know money to buy products from your advertisers, and so they're not a very right. they're not a very valuable demographic unless they're in the commissary. If you're like the honey bun seller, like you're all set. Sometimes they call in though, which uh, they're all, almost always interesting calls uh, when prisoners call into the, to the show. I I would imagine so. Um, the uh, you know I've I have some experience with this of course as you know I, I you know I uh, but I had the hotline I'm I'm it's interesting to me you have people calling you like unsolicited from correctional facilities yeah yeah that's right well I mean as you know it's uh, it's easier nowadays within the last you know 15 years there's been some advancements believe it or not in prison calling technology and prison prison moves real slow. I mean, I guess I can't speak to prison, but I've been in jail a few times and these, uh, these institutions move as slow as molasses. It's like living in the 1950s. You know, you only have access to television and in, in the newspaper and radio, as far as your, uh, your entertainment options are concerned. But surprisingly, they, uh, these tech companies came in and they, they're terrible. Generally their customer service is awful, uh, their product is is pretty bad, but they do exist, and they've made it so you can actually dial out from an uh, from a uh, prison or a jail with you can dial out to a cell phone, which never used to be possible. It used to be whoever it is you were going to call had to have a landline phone, and they had to accept the charges in order for a conversation from a prisoner to another person on the outside to actually move forward. Now you can, as a prisoner, through your commissary account, uh, have money on commissary and you can use that to pay for outgoing calls so the recipient on the other end doesn't have to foot the bill. And that also allows prisoners and jail uh, inmates to call cell phone numbers, which 20 years ago was absolutely impossible. So, I mean, it has gotten easier to dial out from these facilities, which is why whenever somebody calls from jail, they're able to call the VoIP lines here in the studio. You never would have been able to do that in the earlier day, even probably in the earlier days of VoIP. But uh, but now you can. And, I guess uh, I guess the um, I'm thinking of a situation where <laughs> I, I, I'm stuck in my own frame of reference is what it is. You have human beings answer your call in lines, don't you? And no, so, it's it's automated. Oh, so yeah. like. Yeah, I'm familiar with the, you know, commissary funding of the outbound call, but they still have to, the, the caller still has to, like, accept the call. What they still have to accept, What, yeah, what occurs true. to me is that people who are in prison, 
uh, I, as you know, I was in something called the communications management unit. So we didn't have right. access to cell phones. But they are right. prolific in the federal prison system. I, I bet mm. that some of these people are probably just calling from cell phones now that I start to think about well, it. Well, usually you can see uh, – well, I, I know federal uh, prison, I think, is, is ID'd on caller ID, if I recall correctly. But sometimes you can tell they're calling from a facility of some sort on the caller ID. And in that case, I make a – a point of trying to pick up sooner rather than later to accept the accept the call. We make it gotcha. happen. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, um, and so I guess you, when you began Free Talk Live, um, you, this now you mentioned it was a hot talk station. It wasn't necessarily just a news talk station, but you had you had formed political views by this point, right? You yeah. mentioned you mentioned Harry Brown. Um, uh-huh, what, yeah. what year did he run for president? Twice, 1996 and 2000, as the Libertarian Party's presidential candidate, back when they actually had decent candidates worth talking about. Okay, so prior to you even getting the internship at the at the radio station, you had sort of you, you had started to you had sort of started to form a libertarian worldview by that point. Yeah, I would say so. I, I mean, I could I would argue that I was kind of a born libertarian because I never liked being told what to do, and I would always you know try to get out of whatever kind of situations. That I was put in by the quote-unquote authority figures uh, in my in my life, you know, as far back as I can remember, in, in even in elementary school. So I like to feel like I was always a libertarian. I just didn't have a name for it. Right. And I mean, did you take any? You said you you used to listen to conservative talk radio in the in the car with your dad. I mean, did you? My dad had a Rush's Right bumper sticker at one time. Nine seventy WFLA Rush's Right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Rush Limbaugh, man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, you know, uh, oh, I, I'm not, we're, this is not the Rush Limbaugh. We're not going to talk about well, Rush Limbaugh. We all, we all owe Rush a debt of gratitude yes. because, because he did create the talk radio, syndicated talk radio business as we know it today. I mean, that he was the first to really do that. Well, why don't just ever so maybe you could just give us the concise, that, that point of it is very interesting that like mm-hmm. prior, prior to Rush Limbaugh, there was not such a thing as like a nationally syndicated talk radio show, right? As I understand it, he was the first real big one. There might have been something else prior to him, but he's the one that made it a real thing. Yeah, and and I mean, like, absent Rush Limbaugh, like, all of the AM stations basically would have gone out of business, right? Or maybe There's not all argument. of them, but, you know. I've heard that, yeah, I've heard that argument before. And so... Um, he, he, he definitely had a very big impact on that industry and, uh, sure. and an impact on a lot of minds. And so he is, uh, all, all do, uh, all do respect to Rush Limbaugh. Do I have like a, a sound drop that would be appropriate for that? Uh, I'm not sure that I do. So, um, yeah, my dad was a big Limbaugh, uh, fan. He had his newsletter that Limbaugh came out with. I don't know if it was like quarterly or monthly or whatever it was. I don't know if you remember back when Limbaugh had a TV show, back when he was Fat Rush in the early 1990s. <laughs> well, I, I have some awareness of this from watching TV shows about Rush Limbaugh, but I certainly yeah, didn't yeah. have any awareness of it at the time, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, all right. So you, uh, what was it about, what, what was it about Harry Brown that impacted you? I mean, did you meet the guy? What happened? I actually did meet Harry Brown in the year 2000 during his campaign. At that time, he made an appearance in Tampa, and me and I think some of the other libertarians from Sarasota went up there to you know see whatever the speech was, etc. And Harry Brown was tall. Like, I'm six feet tall, and I was looking up 
at Harry Brown. He must have been like 6'5 or something like that. Harry was a really well-spoken libertarian. He was actually a financial advisor by trade. He wrote a book called Failsafe Investing, a very, very small, like 100-page book that just kind of gives you the basics of how to, you know, kind of do investing in a successful manner. And uh, and he came out with some really just wonderful books about freedom, including How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World. And then there were his two campaign books uh, that uh, the first one was the first the first campaign book was the one that I read, uh, the libertarian book that I read first, which is um, Why Government Doesn't Work. And it was written in such an easy to understand manner. Um, I, I don't want to pick up some academic tome. I'm not interested in reading that crap. But, uh, you know, you write to me like a, an everyman, then I can, you know, I can get through that and enjoy it. And, and he was able to communicate, you know, some very, very principled libertarian ideas like ending the war on drugs, for instance, and, you know, getting rid of the IRS and, you know, some of these other things that uh, would resonate with people that, that like the ideas of freedom. I mean, it just clicked with me. Okay. I should read a couple of Super Chats real quick. Um, Please. Maybe next time, sends $3 along. He informed me that my troubleshooting went well. Working good here, he says. Well, thank you very much, sir. Um, Night Nation Review, who I had a great conversation with for four hours last night. If you haven't seen that yet, um, I know I reposted that to the Odyssey channel. I also actually uploaded it to my, uploaded it to my Rumble um, I haven't uploaded it to BitChute yet because BitChute has a two gigabyte upload limit, which is a real pain in the neck when you're trying to upload a four hour video. Um, so if you haven't watched that, and but when I repost on Odyssey, I'm going to, you know, these guys, they could do better. It doesn't put it on the front page of my thing. It's like you have to click on the content thing. And I'm like, do you understand that, you know, you have to, you have to cater to the lowest common denominator, rack up those view counts. But anyway, so I had a great conversation with him last night, and that's why he says, uh, sending along $5. Thanks for a great interview the other uh, night, brother. Uh, really challenged them in their positions, which doesn't happen often enough. Well, it was my honor, sir. I'm looking forward to, uh, in the very near future, bringing you on. Well, we're probably not going to bring you on to real politics. I don't know if you're safe for that. We'll bring you on Radical Agenda. But um, <clears throat> so you, uh, you, you are influenced by the Harry Brown guy. Did you, did you read these books before you started doing Free Talk Live? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. And so um, tell me about, t talk to me about the first episode. Were, were you nervous? Did anything go wrong? What happened? Uh, no, I wasn't nervous because, I mean, as you've already pointed out, I was working for the station for years prior to that. I'd hosted, you know, pretty much every uh, day part on that particular radio station. So not only was I uh, comfortable on the air, I was comfortable in the studio. It's the same studio I'd used for years. Uh, so, you know, we were all set with that. Uh, and what I was really, really happy about was that we had wall to wall phone calls, uh, for three hours. We actually just, we actually stayed on the air longer than we had intended to. And this was on this little 4,000 watt FM radio station that, you know, as I said before, had kind of a cruddy signal in most of, uh, Sarasota. So like, despite the fact that the signal was kind of garbage, we were able to just get just call after call after call. And it was just so much fun. Uh, you know, we kept coming back and then we actually went to the program director and said, Hey, Hey, look, uh, or I think actually they came to us and said, look, do you want to do weeknights? And uh, well, of course. So it was literally three or four weeks in, we were doing weeknights. So, uh, what, what was the, what, what was the time slot that you were in for episode one? I think it was Sunday nights, uh, at the very, very beginning, like seven to 10, but we ended up staying on till like 11, 
on the first night just because it was just crazy on the phones. Had you I've not, never, it's never been like that. Had you then. had you not gone to a, had you not gone late, what would have come on after you? What did you bump? I don't know. Whatever crap they had in the. Okay. <laughs> I have no. I have no idea what that would have been. Okay. Um, let me ask you. You know about taking phone calls. I mean, uh, that presents. Uh, on the one hand, I like to. I, one of my catchphrases on both of my shows is, "The more you talk, the less I have to." So please do give us a call. Right? Sure. And uh, on the one hand, you know they they give you a minute to arrest the old chords and uh, right. and and they bring some content and maybe take a little. Uh, of the show prep pressure off of you, but sure. there's a cognitive burden involved, especially in broadcast radio, um, in you know monitoring what the caller is saying, trying to make you know you're trying to co- think about this from the outside perspective of the listener, while you're a, you have a very different perspective as the host. I mean, talk to me about the challenges involved and the rewards involved in your mind about taking calls on the air. Well, the way we did things, uh, we just take anybody. So, like that was the, the one of the key differences between Free Talk Live and what else existed at the time. Now, it's not unheard of to have an open phone show. Like even Rush Limbaugh claimed he had open phones Friday or whatever, <laughs> free phone or Friday. Yeah, free Something phone like Friday. That. You can call in about anything, and we'll but put that you- was total BS. Yeah, that was, it was total BS, obviously. and it was only like one hour or something like that, and. And you know it was highly screened, and and it was hard to get in, and it was impossible for people to get into that. Uh, in our case, it was just you know you call in, we we got your name, we got you know tell us one word, what do you want to talk about, and we we put you on the air. And on the positive side, that certainly keeps things simple from a call screening perspective. On the negative side, you get some crap calls, but on the positive side, you get every call, and that that would include people who you might have otherwise screened out that ended up being complete gold yeah. as far as the uh, the actual call ended up uh, on the air and I, I, I there was one guy who called in I think and he uh, you know he claimed he was an alien or some crazy thing and we ended up having him on for you know more than one segment just because it was so so wild and his his story was so interesting um, so I, I think having open phones was the right way to go for what we were doing I mean it's supposed to be a show about freedom so why shouldn't anybody be able to call it uh, but what has happened over the years, unfortunately, and the reason why we made the big changes recently to Free Talk Live, which include going uh, pre-recorded three nights a week with other libertarian podcasters. Uh, so Ernie Hancock, for instance, from Declare Your Independence was on tonight. That's why I was able to start your, sh- uh, your show at 930, because normally we'd be on the air live. Uh, but now I can do other interviews or, or whatever. But as uh, I got burned out, Chris, uh, after you know 20 years of doing open phones, it had dawned on me, and this was prior to, even prior to COVID, this was something that uh, I was already considering, like I was getting kind of bored of what has become, unfortunately, the same handful of regular callers. And, uh, you know, we just don't get as many people calling into this nationally syndicated show on, you know, 170 plus radio stations throughout the week. You would think that, yeah, not all the stations are live, and you know, so it's, I don't know what fraction of them are live, and we don't have the biggest stations like we used to anymore. We've lost some of them over the years, like we used to be on WFLA on Saturday nights for a few years, and then they 
dumped us for a real estate show that was going to pay him $1,000 a, a night or whatever, right? So, you know, we've lost some of the biggies over the years and uh, we just don't get the same call volume from our radio listeners. And, you know, you can only tolerate Sarah from New Mexico so many times. Our listeners will know who that is because she calls every single night. And, you know, we do our best to make those calls as interesting as they can be, or if not, we get rid of them as quickly uh, as can be. So, I mean, there's ways to handle it, but it just grates on you. And it grated on me as the host of the show. And I know that if I'm not having fun, then my listeners are probably not enjoying it either. I, I wanted to do the show that I wanted to do. And if I don't want to do the show anymore, then it shouldn't keep going, in, at least in its its uh, format as it had been for all of that time. And so I was ready to take it off uh, weeknights entirely and just say, you know what, let's just walk away from it. It's it's only 58 stations. Uh, most of them aren't live on on weeknights. So we'll just walk away and keep the weekend weekend show, which is you know more than 100 affiliates and still pretty pretty active. Uh, but Mark Edge, who's a longtime co-host, who's been with with the show since the very first night back in Florida, uh, he says, "Well, let's let's talk to some of the libertarian podcasters out there and see if uh, they're willing to pick up these nights and do some pre-recorded content." So, so I think that was actually a good move to make because, you know, I spent all this time bringing these radio stations on board. I didn't want to leave these guys in the in the dust and leave them in the lurch and have to have them fill in with you know, Ben Shapiro or whatever other crap uh, conservative stuff is uh, on at night these days. And uh, so this this allows us to continue doing Libertarian Talk Radio with fresh content, even though it isn't necessarily live content every night. So we're still doing four nights a week live and we're doing three nights a week uh, recorded content with Libertarian podcasters. Which, which nights does Free Talk Live broadcast live currently? Right now, we're live on Wednesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, and Sundays. Okay. Um, uh, and so when you are progressing along in your ideas that that are moving you along this path, I mean, you, you say that you had sort of been born a libertarian, you're influenced by Harry Brown. My understanding is that um, you, you did not begin as a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist. You probably had some like limited government ideas, and then at some point, you decided, you know, the the government is a coercive institution that that should not be able to operate in that fashion. Would that be a fair way of describing what your views are today? And how did you make that transition? I think that uh, there was a time when I was going to uh, do some outreach for the Libertarian Party in Florida. Uh, we would go, and when I say we, me, uh, and then some volunteers would go and set up booths at uh, the county fair, and uh, there was uh, gun shows and even gay and lesbian pride fest. So we had like you know the whole range of gun shows to pride fest, and uh, we were doing the uh, what they call the world's smallest political quiz, which the uh, advocates for self government came up with. It's a quick ten question quiz. You answer yes, maybe or no to ten questions about your views on the issues. And when I took that myself, when I first came across it, whenever that was in the probably the late 1990s, uh, when I first took that quiz, I didn't score 100 100 on that quiz. And I'm like, well, what am I missing here? There's you know some issue that I'm I'm not right about. And uh, and so it was uh, immigration, actually, believe it or not. And and I just said, well, you know, clearly I need to learn more about this particular issue. And so I did. 
and uh, became a 100-100 libertarian at that point. So that's, you know, let's see how I want to address this. I don't want to debate immigration with you, but the when you first take the world's smallest political quiz, you're like, all right, let's get the government out of everything, but we don't want to open up the borders because – I've heard about what that does on the radio, probably, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't even remember what the rationale was at the time, but I know I got it. Uh, I did not score libertarian on that, and uh, I changed my views. Okay. And so can you tell me, do you remember what it was that you read that sort of influenced you, you know, towards what you describe as a more libertarian view on the subject? No, I don't recall. Okay. It's been 20 you know, twenty plus years. Okay, since that time. But once, once the immigration thing was out of the way, you were like, "I'm a." What did you call it then? Well, I will answer the question, but after the fact, uh, if you want a good book on the subject, David Hathaway is a sheriff of a border county in Arizona. It is uh, Santa Cruz County. He's currently the sheriff down there. He's an actual libertarian who ran and won the sheriff's position in this border town. Uh, he ran as a Democrat, though. And the guy's like a principled, uh, voluntarist kind of guy. And uh, he wrote a book about immigration maybe 15 years ago. It's very, very good. It's short. Uh, it's pretty sweet. Sorry, what was the other uh, question? It was David Hathaway, by the way. Okay. And so um, the, uh, what, did you, what did you describe yourself as when you went, as you say, uh, uh, full libertarian? Did you just say libertarian? Did you say anarchist? Did you say voluntarist at that time? And what year was uh, this? Yeah, I was a libertarian when we started Free Talk Live, and then several, maybe a few years in, I think I flirted with calling myself an anarchist, and at around that time, I decided to call myself a voluntarist, and I'm not sure what kind of time frame I might have even re referred to myself uh, as an anarchist, but it would have been a very short time, if at all. Um, I've never really cared for that particular term. Yeah, this has been the subject of a lot of discussion on Free Talk Live yeah, that I recall. Yeah. But like, you know, you know, maybe that's an interesting subject that we could touch on briefly. You know, <laughs> the the term anarchist is fundamentally it means you know absent the 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 rulers, right? Without, Without rulers, rulers, okay. Mm -hmm. And so you would say that fundamentally you're not opposed to that. Uh, that framework, right? I mean, that's that would accurately describe your views, but you don't like that term. Is that a, is that a fair assessment? I like uh, Mark Edge. He says autoarchist is actually a better word, right? Self-rule, essentially, in that uh, particular case, is what autoarchist would mean. But uh, you know, the term anarchist has been used by people in politics and the media for decades to refer to bomb-throwing communists. And so, you know, that's not exactly something that is going to be easy to come back from or try to win back people's minds to that particular term. And so a term like voluntarist, which is a definition of what uh, you define yourself by what you're for rather than what you're against. Uh, so anarchy is, uh, you know, you're defining, oh, I'm against the state. Well, you know, a voluntarist says I'm in favor of human interaction being consensual. Somebody who's anti-war versus pro-peace, right? If you're pro-peace, it's just a more positive message and of course uh i do like positivity i i can uh i can attest to that and so the what do you think about the criticism as a broad general matter it's not specific to you or to anarchism specifically but there are people who say that if you allow you know sort of like an erroneous cultural narrative to chase you away from language that that you'll basically just be running forever. I, I, I don't know that that's 
precisely the criticism that's lobbed at people. This happens a lot in my circles that people say, for mm-hmm. you know, there are, shall we say, symbols that that conjure negative images in <laughs> some people, and and that conjure positive images in other people. And the the people in whom those images conjure positive feelings say, no, we need to defeat the the lie about this symbol. Mm-hmm. We need to have our way. We need to. We need to penetrate the culture and have our symbol and our word be accepted, and therefore you're acting contrary to our purposes by running away from the word or the symbol. What do you say to that criticism? Well, this has been going on, at least with the word anarchist, for longer than I've been alive. So, I mean, this is a tough, tough thing, tough fight to try to win back, and we all only have so much time. You know, we only have so much effort uh, that we can put into something. You know, why would I want to fight over a word that I don't really even care for to begin with? I I never really had a a love for the terminology at all. I I, I don't have that attachment to it. So, uh, I I mean, if that's what you want to do, then, you know, by all means, good luck with that. But with the term voluntarist, that's a that's a word that is going to get as people asking questions. You know, if if you introduce yourself as a voluntarist, somebody might say, "Well, what does that mean?" Whereas if you introduce yourself as an anarchist, a lot of times people will just not say anything and they'll just, you know, ignore you or move on or, you know, not want to not want to broach that subject at all because what they've heard about anarchy is scary. And that's all they know about it. And if you're an anarchist, you must be scary. You must be dangerous. You must be a bomb thrower. Or you must be a communist, which, of course, none of those things are true when it comes to uh, people like me. So, I mean, in certain in cases, you know, it might be worth trying to win a word back or whatever. But if it's decades after the fact, you're fighting a losing battle. So, you know, pick your hill, right? Yes. And I think that that's some... Um, that's some valuable wisdom that a lot of people who listen to the show could afford to learn. Um, you know, your energies as an activist, as an advocate, say, are not limitless. You have to make economic decisions about them. I think it would be a fair way of describing what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can fight and fuss over whether anarchist is a good thing, or you can move on to something else and try to make a make a more meaningful impact on the political discourse. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that wor- that works. And as far as the people within the libertarian movement, uh, most of them are just fighting over piddly things online, right? Like they're infighting, and, and I'm sure this happens in various different uh, movements out there. And it, it's a huge waste of time, you know, just arguing with people in your own circles. And that's why, of course, uh, a lot of libertarians have moved here to New Hampshire, where they can actually do something about achieving liberty in our lifetime, like getting elected. Uh, We've got dozens of free staters that have been elected here in New Hampshire, and the Libertarian Party can't claim that. I can't claim this level of success in 50 years that the Free State Project has had in 20 years. So while a bunch of people are squabbling over uh, terminology on the Internet, the, uh, the free staters, the libertarians here are infiltrating the old political parties and winning elections. So I guess that brings us to New Hampshire. I mean, you're you're working at this radio station. You're doing this um, open phones talk radio show and you're doing it on this um, this major corporations airwaves. And you you for some reason, you're like, you know what? Let me go move to New Hampshire. What possessed you to do such a thing? 
Uh, the Free State Project was something I became aware of probably in like 2002, maybe. It was founded in 2001. And as an active libertarian, you know, I'm, I'm in touch with things that are going on. I was online and somehow came across it. I don't remember exactly how, but uh, and it seemed to me to be a pretty obviously good idea because we've been s struggling as libertarians have struggled so, so many places uh, for so long and with virtually no growth. Uh, it was obvious that it wasn't going to work. We were doing all kinds of, I was doing a lot of outreach. I talked to you about the booths that we were doing at various different events. And, you know, we would find people who were libertarians. The, the purpose of this booth, this outreach booth, was to identify people who agree with us already. We weren't there to convert anybody. We were there to, you know, to filter, right? Like any sales process, right? Who are your best prospects? You know, we would find the people who already agreed with us and then try to get them to do something else. And it was the trying to get them to do something else part that never really paid off. We never really saw any kind of increase in attendance at the Libertarian Party meetings or anything like that. Or if somebody would show up, they'd never come back. <laughs> you know, it, it was absolutely hopeless. And so when I heard about the idea of, oh, well, let's, let's bring Libertarians together into one geographic area, uh, and then maybe we'll have a chance at actually getting somewhere. That seemed to be a no-brainer to me. Uh, I didn't sign up right away because, you know, as a Florida native, I wasn't so sure about going somewhere where it's really cold. But I did get over that. Uh, just, you know, the rationale being I'd rather have cold weather and good people uh, who actually believe in freedom to be around. And New Hampshire overwhelmingly won the vote, by the way. There was uh, 10 states that were up for grabs for the Free State Project, uh, Wyoming, Idaho, Vermont, Maine. Delaware was, I believe, the furthest south. I think South Dakota, North Dakota were probably in there. Alaska, I might be forgetting one. But, uh, but New Hampshire blew them all out of the water because the New Hampshire activists, the people who were part of the Free State Project, but they were already just happened to be in New Hampshire. Uh, every state had its advocates, and they all made a pitch to the first 5,000 signers of the Free State Project, and then the first 5,000 had the opportunity to cast the vote, and New Hampshire just blew them away. So that's why I moved to New Hampshire. Were you in—pardon me if you clarified this in what you were just saying, but were you involved in the decision to choose New Hampshire at all? I voted. Yeah, I was one of the— uh, I was one of the first 5,000 So you were members. involved in the Free State Project before New Hampshire was chosen. Okay. Correct, so, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and and I did vote for New Hampshire. And you it was did my vote number for one choice. Okay. Yeah. It was a ranked ranked choice uh, kind of vote. So uh, I voted New Hampshire, I think, was number one, Wyoming, number two, and I believe Alaska was my third choice. Interesting. Yeah. Um, do you have do you have a do you have an opinion about the nature of what is often referred to the left right paradigm? <laughs> The nature of it, like where it came from. Yeah, like do you believe that the do you believe the left right paradigm? Let me try to word it this way: Do you believe the the left right paradigm of politics is some sort of like artificial imposition of a, a, a control mechanism, or do you believe that it has like naturally occurring origins, or do you have an opinion on that? Hmm. I mean, if I had to uh, make a uh, choice on that, it would I would lean towards artificial. I mean, they. They definitely benefit. They definitely benefit from people's belief that, oh, you can only be on the left or on the right or in the center. And, that, that you know, that's the extent of their 
political vision. You know, the more people are controlled as far as what they believe and the the more they're easy to be controlled and keep in that particular mindset. And of course, the libertarians wanted to break people out of that mindset. And that was the whole purpose of the world's smallest political quiz was to introduce people to uh, an X, Y axis on which people would not just be left or right, but they could also be up and down and the up and down measured whether the person was pro-liberty or whether they were authoritarian. And then they could be sort of left authoritarian or left liberty or right authoritarian or right liberty. And then, of course, centrist was still in there as well. So it, it expanded people's uh, political viewpoints. And now you you find this this sort of diamond chart that uh, David Nolan came up with, who was the, one of the founders of the Libertarian Party. You see it online in a lot of these quizzes, and they've sort of changed the things that are in the the corners, and they've, it's been used in different ways. But uh, I think that it's, it's definitely helped break people out of that left-right paradigm. And do you um, do you notice any sort of like do you notice left-right patterns within the Libertarian movement? Definitely, yeah. There's definitely. Uh, some right-wing people in the liberty movement here in New Hampshire, and there's definitely some uh, some left-wing people, for lack of a better term. They tend to disagree on cultural matters, I would say, more so than anything else. The current controversy is uh, naked people at the Porcupine Freedom Festival. So this is one of the areas where you can pretty uh, crystally see who is maybe leaning more towards the right and who might be a little bit more uh, left-leaning, at least as far as their cultural viewpoints. Okay. And uh, do you think that those divisions within the libertarian movement are are in any way comparable to the divisions amongst the broader population of the United States? I mean, there's definitely people with very varying views culturally in the in the U.S., so uh, yeah. But what, I'm, what I mean to say is that, like, you know, one of the things that made me, shall we say, question the wisdom of libertarianism was, was, was observing that left and right seem to have a firmer foundation than I think a lot of people give it credit for. And as I said at the outset, I, I don't want to get into a debate with you about it. I just, I just genuinely want to understand your views, which is why I'm articulating mine. That's what I'm just trying okay. to do. And so, like, you know, do, do you think that those— when those cultural attitudes emerge, does that do you believe that that's a reflection of some artificial imposition, or do you believe that people are naturally inclined towards a certain attitude towards behavior? Hmm. Uh, that's an excellent question. And I would lean towards, I think people are probably naturally inclined. But obviously, people also learn through environment, right? Like you're raised uh, with parents who have a specific belief system, and you either, go along with that particular belief system or you break away from it. That tends to be what a, you know, a teenager is, uh, is going to do. They're either going to follow their parents' wishes or they're going to go their own way and possibly go the complete opposite direction just for the sake of, of doing it. I mean, we even see it with some of the libertarian parents, for instance. I, I know you remember Michelle Seven. Uh, she was one of the, the earlier movers here to New Hampshire and uh, subsequently has, has moved away, but she had three teenagers and, I don't think all three of them turned out to be libertarians. I don't know how many of them did, but uh, but I don't I don't think they all did, and that might have been because of the uh, the rebellious aspect of uh, of some teens or whatever. But you know, people are different. I mean, that one things you can definitely say is true about people all around the planet. There's a lot of things they have in common, like you know, most people want to. 
take care of their friends and their family and live a nice life or be comfortable or whatever, have, feel loved and have kids and, you know, so on and so forth. But their belief systems are widely different all around the world. I mean, we're not just talking about a left-right thing per se, but uh, but in the U.S. it sort of manifests in, uh, in that way. So, uh, I mean, one thing is for sure, there's a large variety in how people uh, handle cultural interactions across the across the planet so it seems kind of natural well i mean you I know, know i guess people's uh as you say you know there's a there's a certain natural inclinations are also informed by the environment mm-hmm. and as a consequence of this people people develop a worldview and then within the frame of within the framework of that worldview um all events are interpreted and and all social interaction occurs right and so, you know, it seems to me that people who have radically differing worldviews um, have trouble sharing a society, right? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you, which is why I think uh, secession is such an important topic. And I know one on which we still agree uh, to, to this day, if I recall correctly, Chris. And, and that's yes. because, because people shouldn't be forced to live with people that they don't get along with. And, uh, and so we shouldn't be living with communists. You know, those of us who believe in free markets, I don't know if you still do, but, uh, but those of us who do believe in, in freedom uh, and free markets should not be with socialists. Uh, we cannot get along unless we can convert those people. And it's not impossible. Uh, but uh, if they're not willing to adopt the ideas of freedom then they don't belong in a free society. They can go over there to California or they can go to New York or they can go to Massachusetts. There's plenty of places for socialists to be. And that's also true for uh, ultra conservative, you know, right wing people. There's plenty of places where there's a lot of those types of people around Texas, uh, Florida. These are great examples of very conservative uh, leaning, conservative cultural places where conservatives should be gathering and are, by the way. We are seeing this happening. I think this is one of the best things that came out of uh, COVID. In addition to people being able to work from home for the very first time, that's one of the other perks. Uh, Plus, a lot of people pulled their kids out of government school, probably one of the best things that could possibly happen there. But the fact that you've got people pulling out of these workplaces, pulling out of the government schools, a lot of them then had the freedom to leave wherever the hell they were, some you know, crap hole like San Francisco, literally, where they can pull out of there and they can go somewhere that's more like uh, what their beliefs are. And uh, that's something we're seeing happening all around the country. It's leading to conversations about uh, possibly a breakup of the United States. Uh, National divorce has trended on a number of occasions. So people are thinking about this. They're talking about it in a way that they never have before. And uh, and migrations, political migrations, are uh, a long-term success. You know, look at the Mormons in Utah. Look at the hippies moving into Vermont, uh, and look at the the Free Staters moving into New Hampshire. There's no doubt that these groups of like-minded individuals are having an effect. So I think that this is something we need more of. We need more migration of people by their their political and or social uh, viewpoints. I uh, I know that I told you to expect a two-hour show. We're just over an hour in. If we have to go, if, if I, I want to know how firm of a, a, a 
uh, a, a show time I have here. Do, do you have the ability to go over a little bit? Yeah, we can go over. We okay. can wing it here. It's okay. All right. So, um, all right. And so you are uh, down there in Florida. You're doing this radio show. You vote for New Hampshire. New Hampshire is chosen. And this was in 2002, did you say it was chosen? No, uh, no. Actually, it was October of 2003. So 2003. this will be the 20th. This year will be the 20th anniversary of New Hampshire being selected as the destination for the Free State Project. And people started moving immediately, uh, the earliest movers, the most, you know, mobile. Uh, this, it was mostly single people at that point, I think, that moved up. Uh, but there were some very, very early movers. In fact, one lady even moved up to New Hampshire before it won, just sort of predicting uh, that it would win. And so they they were what you would call the early movers. The goal of the Free State Project was to get 20,000 people to sign and pledge that, you know, if, if 19,999 other people will do this, then I will also move to New Hampshire and work to achieve a government that has the maximum protection of life, liberty, and happiness or something. And that's kind of the, the was the statement of intent. And it's unfortunate. The Free State Project founder admitted later that he probably screwed a major thing up, and that was that uh, he should have just had the vote at 20,000 instead of 5,000. They he just arbitrarily picked 5,000 members as you know when they should vote on what the destination states should be. And the reason for that was that before the vote happened in 2003, the membership signups of the Free State Project were just they're just going through the roof. I mean, there were a ton of people that were signing up for this thing at that time. And of course, you know, this is fresh off of uh, 9-11 and, you know, the whole direction that things were going with the wars in Iraq and Af Afghanistan. There was a lot of, you know, political motivation behind people's decision to maybe make a change in their life. And unfortunately, once New Hampshire won, and even though it won overwhelmingly, the interest in the Free State Project signups just fell off a cliff. So the theory was later on that had the founder of the Free State Project, Jason Sorens, chosen 20,000, the signups would have kept shooting up in 2002 and 2003 to where it might have hit 20,000 within a year or something like that. And then they would have had the vote. New Hampshire would have already been the destination. And then it would have triggered the quote unquote triggered the move. That's what the free staters used to refer to of when they got to 20,000. That would be all right. It's time to move. Well, that didn't happen until 2016. So literally 13 years. It took 13 years to get from 5,000 to uh, to 20,000 members, and uh, it could have done. It could have been a lot faster. But the people who moved prior to 2016, uh, including you, Chris, would have been considered early movers for the Free State Project. Now, when when I've talked to you about your history in the past, I remember you saying that you chose Keene because there were there were activists in Keene that were of interest to you. And so actually when you told me that you were involved in the choosing of New Hampshire, that actually struck me as surprising. So so you had participated in choosing New Hampshire as the state to move to, but it was and and then sometime after this you discovered these activists. Can you tell me about who those activists are and what it was that inspired you? Do you remember what I'm talking about? Sure, yeah. yeah. Uh the people who moved to New Hampshire I moved in two thousand six. The people who moved prior to me, so after two thousand three uh, we're doing some activism here that was, to me, very, very exciting, very noteworthy activism. There was video of this. This was back when, you may remember, Google Video, prior to Google purchasing YouTube, they had their own competitor called Google Video. And one of the the people that actually was a 
Brattleboro, Vermont native, but kind of came over uh, visit. He still lives over there, but he he you know, got friendly with the the keen activists, and they were doing stuff like civil disobedience. They're getting arrested. I remember one time they went into the IRS office, and they were just going to silently hold signs like anti IRS signage. Seems like a pretty clear First Amendment freedom of speech thing to do, but they got arrested by the Federal Protective Service uh, for that particular thing. And you know, video of this was coming out, and that wasn't the only thing that they'd gotten arrested for. And I, you know, sitting in uh, in Florida, where the only thing the libertarians do is every four years they have failed campaigns for office, which barely pick up one to two percent. By the way, Florida libertarians still barely picking up 1% today. So they've had absolutely zero uh, growth in their success in the last 20 years. But the, uh, you know, seeing these things happen, I'm like, whoa, there is something really special happening in this keen, you know, and I'm not seeing it happening elsewhere in New Hampshire. And so I wanted to bring my show and my ability, my media uh, abilities. I mean, I'm not the I'm not the best video editor, but I can put a video together and I can get it out the door. I can run a camera, so uh, you know I I have those abilities, and that's why I moved to Keen. I wanted to help these guys and ladies cover what they were doing and get the word out to the the larger libertarian movement about what was happening here in New Hampshire and specifically the civil disobedience that I thought was was particularly interesting. I, I think it's worth calling extra attention to the fact that you mentioned Google video in this, mm -hmm. because, you know, today people are immersed in social media. They see video of activism and they consider that to be a normal feature of political life. That was not a normal feature of political life when you when you were seeing it. Right. Yeah, I mean, the well, as we discussed before, I mean, prior to these years, video on the internet was small. It was not really, really good at all to watch live. I mean, it was just a totally different experience than than it is today. And and these weren't live videos per se. They were they were edited. the The guy that was doing the filming at the time was a professional video editor, and so he was he was making some pretty decent uh, videos of what was going on. But but they were real like you know more real than reality tv this was what was actually happening these people were actually getting arrested for the things that they were doing that were completely peaceful and and you know it was ridiculous and uh and i just thought yeah these guys need some backup so so is the i i think fair to say that you you were inspired both by the the boldness of the activism and the media strategy of the people who were here. And that, that is uh, sort of what made you choose this city of all the cities of New Hampshire. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you do activism and there's no video around to see it, did it really happen? I, I, uh, <laughs> I think today most people would say no, but I think probably prior to 2006, people probably assumed that it was, right? I imagine there's, I imagine sure. there's a lot of people who were like, right about me getting arrested. <laughs> it probably happened a lot, you know? And so this, this was sort of a, a, a thing that was emerging at the time. And I, I think that I call attention to it because, you know, you, you are in a, in a very real sense, you know, a, a media pioneer in your space, right? Uh, you know, going in, you you were at the vanguard of uh, uh, media and activism, I think it's fair to say. And so I think that's very interesting. And so you know, when you when you moved, um, what happened to your relationship with Clear Channel? Oh, I actually had already been gone from Clear Channel by the time I moved. They uh, they it was, I don't know, 2000 or 
2003, somewhere in that range. I think it was probably early 2004. They called me in. There was a new general manager that had taken over and she was just like a total corporate suit type. And she, uh, she said, you know, we're going to let you go, but uh, we'll give you a severance package. You, you know, you get four weeks worth of pay. I'd been on, you know, for six or seven years at that point at the station. And, you know, they figured probably they could bring some other kid in and have him board operate for eight bucks an hour instead of the 10 or 11 or whatever it was that I was getting paid. Uh, it's not, it isn't, uh, or, you know, rocket science, you know, you could bring it, they, they called us board monkeys for a reason. Right. So, uh, you know, they, uh, they gave me a severance package and I was out the door. And at that point, uh, the, what they didn't do was they didn't take free talk live as uh, intellectual property. And what had actually happened just before they fired me was they were uh, the FM talk station that we were on had flipped formats. So it was only FM talk for like two years. And so they flipped formats and they told us, well, don't worry, we're going to bring you guys back. You're going to be our new afternoon drive show on the uh, the little closet AM station I was telling you about earlier, the, the one that was just a simulcast. Right. Well, they were moving from the old studios where it was a closet into a completely new renovation kind of building, whole, whole, whole new radio station where they had all new studios and plenty of room to actually put local shows on the air on that AM station. And so they, they, you know, they hung this carrot out there saying, well, don't worry, we're going to bring you back. We'll make you, we're, we're going to replace Sean Hannity with free talk live on uh, the local <laughs> station. And we're, uh, you know, we're excited, you know, we're going to be on, uh, it's going to be AM. So it won't be as good. I mean, it's a cruddy little AM station compared to the FM talk station that we were on but it would have been it would have been good to stay on we never got there we never got to be on uh afternoon drive what we ended up doing with free talk live after the fm station flipped formats back to rock radio was we just started doing internet shows uh at that time while we were still on uh clear channel and while we were still employed by clear channel doing whatever other things they were having us doing they didn't just they didn't think about free talk live it just wasn't even a consideration for them they never made you know had me sign any kind of paperwork to give them any ownership of the show that's that's how little they paid attention as i was explaining earlier we were able to just do this show which broke most of the rules of talk radio without ever being stopped or taken over by uh, the corporation. And so when I walked out the door at Clear Channel uh, and left that job, I still had Free Talk Live. And that was when we took the show to an AM station in town. And the one time I ever paid for radio, we were paying 500 bucks a month for the crappiest AM station in town. It was like literally a 500-watt uh, nighttime signal. It was, I don't know, maybe a thousand during the day and they cut the wattage at night. And, uh, every now and then I, we, well, I wouldn't do it consistently, but every now and then I'd go and I'd hit the, the button on the transmitter to pump the wattage up at, uh, at night. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You screw a lot of people up when you do that. I don't know if you know about this. Um, yeah, no one's listening, you know, uh, uh, well, you know, station. somebody was interfering with my enjoyment of Bill Cunningham when I lacked internet <laughs> access. Okay. And so like, I, I did not, um, I did not fully appreciate the, um, the mechanics of AM radio until fairly mm -hmm. recently. I didn't have much occasion to listen to it. Right. And so. Until um, you were in prison. Until I was in, in jail in prison. Well, mm -hmm. I, yeah, I think as a matter of fact, the. In, in jail, when I was in the county jail in New Hampshire, I only had an FM radio. That's right. So right. I didn't even I didn't even get AM radio until I was in prison. And so, like, 
I didn't I didn't appreciate the mechanics of it. And like I as a matter of fact, what really caused me to fully appreciate it was when they moved me from Virginia. I'm sorry, from from Iowa, they moved me down to Virginia for trial, right? Mm-hmm. And I and I had this thing when I each time I moved to a different facility, they bounced me around. And like I'd get there and I'd start writing down. I'd go tune into the station. You know, I can't go look up the radio schedule, right? Sure. And so I get there. I I'm flipping through the dial. I'm like, oh, there's people talking. I recognize that voice, you know, or you know what, you know, I recognize the subject matter. I recognize the commercial. Maybe you know, you start to figure things out about what's on a radio station. And I would, throughout the course of the day, pull out a notepad and and flip between what I identified as the talk stations and write down each hour. I would I'd take out the piece of paper, I write 12 a.m., 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m., all the hours of the day. And mm-hmm. over the course of a couple of weeks, I'd figure out what was on those radio stations at all hours. And um, and I did this when I was in the county jail in New Hampshire, in the, the Stratford County Jail in Dover, New Hampshire. I started to do this at the private prison facility in Tallahatchie, Mississippi, mm-hmm. and then r- right about the time I finished the schedule, they shipped me off to Marion, Illinois. <laughs> and so, uh, and then in Marion, Illinois, was when I uh, when I became better acquainted with AM radio. Mm-hmm. But I didn't fully appreciate then the mechanics of it because um, I was not moving around. When they moved me to Virginia, and I discovered that at night I could listen to radio stations that I was listening to. In Marion, Illinois, I was mm. like, "What the heck is going on here?" And I'm like, "I'm getting these, um, uh, 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 I'm getting, uh, you know, radio stations of uh, of a certain caliber." Pardon me, real quick. Yeah, you're getting what you would call the skip in uh, in AM radio, where it's bouncing the signal off of the ionosphere, uh, because in AM radio, you don't need to have a direct essentially uh, view of the transmitter, whereas with FM, if there's a hill or a mountain or something in between you and the transmitter, you're basically done for. Uh, but AM, you can essentially listen from, as you say, uh, a long distance. And so there's certain AM stations that have a what they call a clear channel. This is not just the name of a radio corporation, but it is also an FM, or sorry, not FM, it's an AM uh, terminology that the FCC uses to describe a station that has, I don't know if it's no competitors across the United States, but it's for a very, very long distance. There's not allowed to be any other stations that use that particular frequency. So you are probably listening to some pretty heavy-duty wattage uh, stations from elsewhere. I noticed that I could listen to WABC in New York from from um, the Central Virginia Regional Jail. I forget what city that was mm-hmm. actually in properly. Um, uh, what was some of the other ones? Uh, I was listening to a Detroit radio station. I was mm-hmm. listening to, um, and then and then when I came back to then when I came back to Illinois, like I hadn't really fully like appreciated the complexity of the AM dial until then. Then I started like going through all the stations because I thought I like you know your AM radio that you get in the federal prison system. Like you can scan the radio stations, right? And it will mm-hmm. you know auto program the stations or whatever, right? And so I did that during the day, and I didn't fully appreciate what I was able to do at night because I didn't I didn't experiment with it, right? So then I came back, right. and I was like, "Wow, I can now I'm back in Virginia, and I can listen to Detroit, I can listen to New York, I can listen to all these different stations." And I was like, "Oh my god!" And 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 it like it enriched my media life in a in a place where I was very deprived of media. You know, as a sure. communications management unit, you know, as you know, I I couldn't even talk, I couldn't talk to you, I couldn't talk to a right. lot of different people, and so my my access to information was like so important to me. 
And when- Speaking of the feds, uh, sorry to interrupt here. Yeah. It's my nighttime photo time where I have to take a picture of myself, and it always happens after 10 o'clock. They were very kind to schedule it to where it happens after Free Talk Live. It also happens once earlier in the day. It used to happen three times a day. I'm down to two because I've, 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 I've had a lessening of my bail restrictions. But anyway, it, it, it beeps at me, you know, uh, randomly at, during this particular time window. And so I have to go and, uh, you know, I got you. So you have to, you have to give the proof of life. Uh, there's not a beach with a bunch of, you know, foreign looking people behind me sort of thing. (laughs) Apparently this is the same thing they did during COVID in Australia, where the people in Australia had to take a picture of themselves to prove they were in their homes, (laughs) uh, and they couldn't be more than 15 minutes away from their home. And so the rule is I can, I can take the dog out for a walk. And if this thing goes off while I'm out, I got to be able to get back here within 15 minutes. Uh, otherwise, it will time out and, you know, I could get in trouble. So okay. basically what it'll do is it goes off once. I've actually changed the tone to be a like a an air raid siren that just goes for a, a minute straight so, it, <laughs> so I don't miss it uh, when it goes off. But if I do miss it or if I get, you know, if I space out and put the phone down or something like that, Usually three minutes later, there's like a blaring noise that they have that gives you a heads up. And they'll hit you with four of those things over the 15-minute time frame. And if you miss all four, then they hit you with the last one and it's over. And then, so I'm just and, take and, this and, then and then the men with the guns come. I, I um and I also well, usually what they do is they call you or they message you like, hey, where are you at? And I know you're accustomed to doing a, a, a show with commercial breaks. Do you need do you uh do you have anything you need to do? Do you want to take a, a moment or anything like that other than your I'm okay uh, for now? I mean, okay. we might have to visit the restroom at some point, but I'm good for the moment. Okay, and so um, all right. So when you you were you were separated from Clear Channel, you went to this uh, this small AM station where you were paying for airtime. You said you were paying five hundred dollars a month for how many hours of airtime a month? We were doing the same show. We were doing uh, weekdays, so okay. three three hours a night, five nights a week, and five hundred bucks a month is a steal for uh, for any kind of radio station. You can't. You know, maybe in a small, small town or whatever. But this was also a small, small station. And it was money she otherwise wouldn't have gotten. You know, it was like, okay, well, these guys know what they're doing. Usually, this this station was such a weird uh, situation because, like, it's one of those stations where they don't care who you are. If you can fog a mirror and you got, you know, $100, <laughs> they're going to put you on the air. And we used to come in after this guy, this super weird, I don't know, autistic or whatever the hell he was. There was this guy, he did a show called Marty on Mondays, and he was the worst radio host you could possibly imagine. He couldn't run the board. He didn't know what he was doing. He had no producer. They didn't like give him a guy who knew what he was doing and like, okay, well, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Just put him behind a mic and let him let him talk. He was playing playing music or whatever. It was like a music show, but he would talk. And a lot of the times he'd be like way over here, just kind of talking, <laughs> like way, way off of mic. And, they, you know, he just couldn't be taught how to do things correctly. But, man, they just kept putting that dude on. And he was just absolutely terrible. So, like, I think what happened was we were real broadcasters who knew what we were doing, and we were willing to give her five hundred bucks a month. Show, so she took it. And and, uh, we and, were. and when you were working for Clear Channel, 
Um, it, it, clearly, they had they were selling their own advertisements, I imagine, or were you guys responsible for selling ads on your airtime, or how did that work out? And what was what changed when you went over to the other station in terms of like making making were you, were you subsidizing this thing, or was this a business at this point? No, it was subsidized for sure. I don't think we ever brought in any revenue to Free Talk Live for like four or five years. So uh, in the earlier days, it was just whatever commercials were on the station were running during our show. We didn't have any specific sponsors or anything like that. We did manage to kind of rope in some restaurants in the area uh, to essentially feed us every single night of the week. So I guess we kind of had sponsors in that way. Like we had Bennigan's. Uh, we, we actually had the, the delivery guy from Bennigan's one night, we put him on the air and he was actually really good. So we started having him, having him as like a regular co-host, even when he wasn't working at, uh, at Bennigan's, we had like an Italian restaurant, we had a wings place. We had, uh, we had a, a personal chef, which if you don't know what a personal chef is, they are super cool. I had no idea, you know, this is like something you would think, oh, it's only for rich people. And uh, actually, it was surprisingly affordable. This guy would come in, he'd cook up some awesome dinner for us at, at his house or whatever and bring it in and like a, you know, he'd have like a heating device that he'd bring in. So it was hot whenever it, whenever it came in. And he was pitching his services, you know, to the, to the listeners of being a personal chef. And it was kind of interesting. Like, essentially what he does is you sign up for his service. He gives you a questionnaire about, you know, what kind of foods do you like, right? Like, what do you want to eat? Do you like meat? Do you like... You know, Etc. And uh, and so he will shop for to what you you want to eat. Essentially, he'll make you know really nice meals. And what he does is he he comes over to your house, uses your kitchen, cooks up whatever the hell you know he's going to cook up. Cooks you a week's worth of food, puts it into like Tupperware containers, and puts it in the freezer. So that way you don't have to pay him to be at your house every day. That's what like you know rich people would do. But you could actually pay this guy. I don't remember what it was, but it wasn't a lot of money. And he, you know, he's only spending a few hours cooking up a few meals at your house, and then boom, he's gone. You got food for an entire week. You didn't have to shop it. You didn't have to cook it. I mean, the amount of time this guy would save a, a busy person was well worth uh, the amount of money that he was charging. So that was one of the things I learned uh, from our sponsors. It was pretty cool. This is this is what Opie and Anthony would refer to as plugola, that he comes mm -hmm. in, feeds you, and he's like, I'm so good at this. And you're like, he's so great. Wouldn't it he be was. great if you had this happen to you, huh? Uh-huh. He was great, man. And um, no so I guess when you, well, when you left Clear Channel and now you're subsidizing your, your artwork, your activist project, mm -hmm. um, uh, how did you have to get a regular job on top of this? It was that what was your your life like in the course of that transition? Yeah, I mean, I'd worked uh, more than one job for for a long time. I had significant savings uh, at that point. I'd always been good with money. Uh, my parents taught me how to save money early on. You know, I, I had the kind of parents who uh, wanted to teach responsibility, and so you know, I. As, as young as I can remember, my parents were making me do things like I had to buy my Nintendo, right? When it was in the, the late 80s and the NES came out and, you know, I was eight years old or six or whatever the hell, I, however old I was, I had to save up my allowance, which was not just allowance. It was I took out the trash to earn the allowance, right? Like I had to do something to get the 50 cents a week or whatever it was my parents were giving me. And, you know, I managed to save the money to buy the Nintendo. And that was a real accomplishment for me you know, back then. And so, so I always had learned uh, responsibility. And my, my parents were entrepreneurs. 
So my mom owned, owns still to this day owns a thrift store in uh, Sarasota, and I was working for her at single digit ages, uh, working at the cash register, and you know getting good customer service ability and things like that. So by the time I got a quote unquote real job working for Kmart as a teenager, I already had all that stuff down. Uh, and so saving money was uh, was pretty natural. I graduated high school with ten thousand dollars in the bank. That is so. uh, that is unusual. I think that's yeah. that's very good. And um, and and okay, that is interesting. And so uh, so you you had some savings and you were working, and then you would go in and basically do this thing because it's your passion. Then that's right. Yep, we kept okay. it going. Like I said, we we uh, we were on the internet for a, some number of weeks while we were still at clear channel until they, uh, they blew us out. And it wasn't long after that, that I immediately started looking around for, uh, for radio stations. We ended up moving off of that station at some point, Mark edge, uh, got a job as a sales manager at a different AM radio station in town that had opened up uh, main street studio office or stu- main street studio. So it like had windows right out on main street, really cool kind of location. Like, the the actual broadcast studio was right there where people walking by would be able to stop and watch. And there were speakers outside so people could stop and kind of watch and listen what was going on. So it was, it was a really neat kind of experience to do radio in a, in a facility like that. And so Mark was working there. So, of course, he got me brought in as, uh, as one of the board operators there and... And the guy that was running the station was a was a drunk. I mean, he didn't know what the hell he was doing. And so I, you know, kind of suggested some programming options for him. And one of them was to bring Free Talk Live over. So we made the move over to a station where we didn't have to pay for the airtime anymore. And it wasn't long after that that I had contacted Genesis Communications Network, which is the same network that uh, airs Alex Jones, that some of your fam- uh, listeners may be familiar with. At the time, they were airing Lionel, who was uh, an old talk show host. From I, I, I'm t- sorry to interrupt you, and I yep. want to talk about Genesis yeah, sure. Communications. I just, I, I, I have a timeline here. The okay. so, like, when you um, tell me, how did you meet Mark Edge? And for, for, uh, the, for the listeners who don't know, Mark Edge is the co-host of Free Talk Live. You guys have been partners for a very long time. How did you meet yeah. him? He was a sales guy at the Clear Channel Group in the late 1990s. After he got out of prison. Uh, he got into sales and was recruited from, I think he was working at Gold's Gym as a sales guy at Gold's Gym. And the uh, general manager from the radio station went in there and headhunted him away from Gold's Gym and brought him into radio sales. So he was just one of the sales guys at the station that, you know, we, we met through working there. And uh, Mark Edge, you mentioned he got out of prison. I believe he did nine years. He's I know he's threatened to sue people for calling him a murderer, but there was a death involved in him going to prison, right? Yeah, he was in a hotel room when a man was murdered by what Mark thought was a friend of his. And uh, the man roped Mark into helping him dispose of the body. So Mark ended up catching a second-degree murder charge. And so when Mark gets out of prison, he goes into sales. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this, uh, you know... It, Seems to have worked out. He he developed a talent for this. In any case, I he, I, I know him to be great. very good. Right? Yeah, he's a he's a great salesman. There's no doubt. And so this is interesting to me for the the sake of how you come to find this relationship with the other radio station, right? So you're, you know, I think that most people in the position that Free Talk Live was in would be like, oh my god, we've been fired from the radio. You know, how do we get somebody else to hire us or to go fill out job applications? I don't know. But you mm-hmm. guys started calling other radio stations. I I gather. I mean, there aren't that many stations to call, even even in a town as large as Sarasota, which is no small 
Uh, it's not, I mean, it's, it's not the biggest place in the world, but you know, when I left that, that County, there were half a million people living in the County. The city itself doesn't have as many people, but the County is huge and it's, it's sprawl everywhere. I mean, there's people living all over the place there, but there's only like three talk stations at any given time. And, and, you know, the, the one that we were on was the, the worst, the sort of the bottom of the barrel. And the one that we were going to was actually new to talk. Uh, so it was sort of a, a new opportunity and they had uh, brought Mark in as their sales manager. And of course, you know, he brought me in as uh, as a talented uh, operator of other things. Okay. So this, when you went to this next, when you get went to the second broadcast station that you were on, you, you were not, this was not a cold call. Mark was already working for them in some kind of sales role. And then they brought you guys in. That was the third content. one. That was the third one. So there okay. was the first one was Clear Channel. The second one was the one we were paying 500 bucks a month for. Uh, the bottom of the barrel. How station. did you approach? How did you approach the one that you were paying five hundred dollars a month for? What's the approach? I, I took care of that one. Uh, I I called up and you know just asked right like hey you know you guys sell airtime or what's it going to take to get on your station or whatever. I don't remember exactly what the the thing was, but yeah, they were one of those stations. They call them in the business brokered stations because uh, like I said, they'll sell you airtime if you can fog a mirror. And uh, and so you know we were we were better than the average. A buyer of their airtime. So of course they took us on. And then the station Mark was working for was that downtown station that had the main street studio. And he, uh, he brought me in there and we moved free talk live. Okay. And, uh, so now you're still in Florida, then you're on your third radio station before you decide to move to New Hampshire. Yeah. Probably our third station in as many years. Cause we started in 2002 uh, we were gone from Clear Channel by early 2004, and it might have been even late 2003. Anyway, 2002, 2000, uh, I think we might have started at the third station probably 2005. So yeah, t- roughly three or four years, three stations. What what year did you move to New Hampshire? 2006. Okay, so you 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 went to this station in 2005. The next year, you're you're on your way to New Hampshire. Yeah, actually, uh, so uh, as I was saying at the station, the general manager was literally a drunk. He didn't know what he was doing. He's also the owner. And so he would he would get out of, uh, he'd leave the office at noon and go to the Gator Club, which was two doors down from the station. And the Gator Club didn't open, I don't think, until noon. So he <laughs> <laughs> went wait until the gator club opened up he'd go in there and get drunk and then come back to the radio station and start making management decisions <laughs> anyway uh so you know this guy didn't know what he was doing on the air and uh i i knew that lionel who was a oh no was no lionel was on wr at the time anyway lionel uh i've always been a big fan of he's sort of uh sort of this independent voice on syndicated talk radio. I don't think he's doing talk radio anymore. He just does YouTube videos, but um, I got him on the station and, and then uh, Harry Brown was actually doing a weekend show on Genesis communications network. The, the former presidential candidate with the libertarian party, he had a, a show he was doing and you know, you could listen to it online or whatever. He had archives there. Uh, this was like pre podcast. And, and I said to the manager, well, you know, there's this show that you could put on Saturday nights and I can call the syndicate for you and, you know, see what they say. And so I contacted Genesis Communications Network, which was Harry's syndicate and asked them about getting him on. And, and at the same time I said, Hey, are you guys looking for any other shows? 
And they said, sure, send us a demo. And we sent a demo. And before you know it, Free Talk Live is syndicated from that station. Uh, so that would have been our, you know, uh, flagship station there on Main Street in, in uh, Sarasota, Florida. And we're syndicated on weekends. And very much like when we started in as a local show, like where I told you before, we got we got into weeknights like three or four weeks when we started as a local show. Same thing happened with Genesis. They came to us after like three or four weeks and said, hey, do you guys want to do weeknights? And we said, well, yeah, of course. And that was the time at which I, I realized this guy that runs this station is a, you know, unpredictable element. And we need to have some place we can do this show in case this does not work out at this particular radio station. Because if, you, if you've been in radio, you know that firings happen all the time. People move around this business. And so it was, it was obvious we had to have our own studio. And it was at that point that I started looking into buying uh, equipment and building what you can your viewers can sort of see some of in the background here. There's a lot of equipment racks with all kinds of equipment in it. Uh, you know, so I, I put some money into uh, to building a studio, and we ended up moving the show ultimately off of that radio station and into my home studio, and that's where it's been forever uh, since then. Okay, can you give me the frequencies and call signs of the stations in order? Uh, 105.9 WYNF would have been uh, that station is no longer in Sarasota. That those call letters are no longer there. Um, that would have been the FM station, uh, 1280 WTMY, I believe still exists down there. That was the second station. And then 1220 WIBQ, WIBQ also no longer exists, uh, down there as, uh, as calls. Do you, um, did you ever have any involvement in ham radio? No, actually, uh, as I did tell you, I was, I did grow up sort of a radio interested, uh, character. I, I, had a shortwave radio that I listened to it at one point. Um, I had a CB radio when I was a teenager and, you know, talked to people on CB radio, but I never liked ham radio because of the licensure aspect, as you might've uh, already predicted. Uh, yeah, I didn't want to have to ask permission to talk to people. And so that's why I liked CB because you didn't have to have a license at that point. Right. Uh, there was a time I think in the past where CB was licensed, but uh, but it hasn't been for many, many years. What What was the first station that you were syndicated to by Genesis Communications? Good question. They started us with three stations. Uh, one of them was KCXL, which is like a six-watt radio station. In <laughs> um, It's in Missouri. I think it's like Liberty, Missouri, some suburb of a big city, which I don't even remember at this point. Um, there's just some kooks that run that radio station and it's like GCN all day and all, all night or whatever. But, uh, that was one station. There was another station in Marysville, Tennessee, WBCQ, if I recall correctly, uh, run by another uh, crackpot, uh, out there. And, uh, we got off, they kicked us off sh sh after short order. And the third station, I don't recall. Maybe it was WEIM in Massachusetts, but I don't recall uh, the third station for sure. Okay. Um, and they provided these stations to you, at, like, from the outset? You didn't have to cold call these program managers or whatever? GCN did that. Correct. Well, uh, they were just already on board, I think, for— okay. My guess would be GCN had something prior to offering the, the spot to us, and that show went away. 
and that show probably had three st- three affiliates or something like that. And so they're like, well, we got something new coming in, and uh, you know, do you want to stay on for it? Okay, sure, whatever. Because these were stations that would have just taken GCN twenty four seven, that kind of thing. And can you maybe? like briefly encapsulate what is the business model of GCN? I mean, they they syndicate radio stations on some mass scale. They have, I guess, relationships with different, um, hundreds of hundreds of stations. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, their, their business model has changed over the years. And, you know, I say this from the outside, right? Like I'm not, um, you know, I'm not their general manager. I'm not their program director. I don't work for GCN. Do you still have a relationship with GCN? Yeah, we're, we're on GCN actually. Uh, we, we stepped away for a couple of years from them and we went with a different syndicate, but we're back with GCN as of the beginning of this year, actually. No, was it the beginning of this year? No, it was last year. Hmm. Well, yeah, it might've been the beginning of this year. I'm losing track of when that happened, but yeah, we took a, uh, took a break went away, but we're back. But anyway, the way that it worked when we came on board with them in 2004, I guess, yeah, 2004, uh, the way it worked at that time was it was what you would call a barter agreement. And so uh, GCN, when they get a show on a radio station, they're doing a barter deal with the station, meaning that the radio station doesn't have to pay to have a host. Right. Because that's expensive. Right. You got to pay a guy to come in. You got to pay for all this crap and it's expensive. So you you instead do a barter deal with a company like GCN or what this is what most of the radio syndicates do, by the way. Limbaugh was an exception, but Glenn Beck, you know, you name it, whoever it is you want to look at, uh, they're all doing barter. So what that means is the network gets a certain number of commercials per hour. And the local station gets a certain number of commercials per hour, and everybody's happy. Everybody gets their advertisers on the air, and you know that's how it works. That's the that's the trade deal essentially. So the local station, if they had hired a guy, they'd have all the inventory that they wanted, and uh, because they're not hiring a guy, they're bringing in this other show from the satellite. They got to give the the satellite company some airtime to air their ads, and so we had a split deal with GCN where they had a certain number of ads per hour and we had roughly half of that amount that we had control of. So GCN had their ads, the local station had their ads, and Free Talk Live had our ads. So that's how it was divvied up ultimately. In a three-hour episode of Free Talk Live, um, when you cut out the commercials, how much how much content is there? Oh, well, that changed earlier this year. Today, it's about two and a half hours. And prior to January, it was about two. So for most of Free Talk Live's lifetime on the radio, it was about two. And then I made the decision um, at the end of last year. And it was something I wish I'd done 10 years earlier, but (laughs) better late than never. We cut out two breaks an hour. So when you used to be on the show, it was four breaks an hour. And it was like every 10 minutes you're stopping and there's a four minute long commercial break. And then there's the top of the hour one, which is eight minutes long. And that adds up. It's a lot of ads. And <laughs> and 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 yeah. every time you come back, you recap the prior segment for the yeah. for the new listeners, because because the, the time spent listening is not necessarily universal. So it's like the, the amount of content that you could squeeze in there is limited pretty severely. Yeah. Um, and that's how it was for a very, very long time. And I, I just realized last year, it's like. You know, we got to get with the times here. I mean, we 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 have so much competition online. 
Uh, and every online show doesn't have ads, or if they do, it's like, you know, once an hour, they'll do a live spot for some, you know, uh, buy this box on the internet that ships to you once a month or, or whatever. And of course they're not getting paid for those. They're only making it, they're only making money when somebody buys the box, right? Like those are called per inquiry or per acquisition ads in the, in the business. But yeah, you don't see a lot of ads on these, these internet streams, and so, uh, you know, radio's got to get with the program. If radio wants to have a chance of making it for another 20 years, they got to reduce the uh, the ad count. So, you know, we decided we were going to try to lead the way uh, in that way and uh, and set the example and say, look, we're going to do we're going to do with less. And so we came back to GCN and we said, look, this is the, the other syndicate we, we had joined for a two year time frame didn't want to play ball on this. They they wanted to they were willing to reduce somewhat, but they didn't want to do everything I wanted to do. And so we went back to GCN and said, look, this is what we want to do. Uh, do you guys want to want us to come back? And, and they were they were all they were all for it. Uh, we'd always kept the door open with them. You know, I, I don't like burning bridges. I'm not going to burn a bridge. And so we we continued to have a good relationship with them, even even when we weren't together. So it was easy to come back to them. They were welcoming us back. We cut out two breaks an hour, which converted eight minutes an hour of commercial time into more show time. And so, you know, eight minutes times three, three hours, you got almost a half an hour more of content for Free Talk Live every single night because of this. And it it's so much nicer because we aren't interrupted that often. And so we get to get deeper into conversation. If we have a guest on, we can get deeper into the discussion with the guest, et cetera. So it's just a, it's a much more um, uh, enjoyable experience to be on the air. But at the same time, it was still annoying because we were only getting the same handful of callers and it's just war it just wore on me, Chris. And so that's why we made the, the other change. So that was the big change was cutting two breaks out per hour. And then just a few weeks ago, we we'll, made the we'll, other we'll change. We'll talk more about the network yeah. thing very soon. I, I sure. know that we're, we're, we're running. I'm, and by the way, I, I, I'm not seeing a great deal of like, um, the, the, the chat is not the most lit thing, but we actually have pretty decent viewer statistics for the evening. I'm, I'm looking cool. at 60 now watching on rumble, which wow. like, I don't have a big following on rumble yet. Um, huh. and so like, you know, it seems to me that, and the numbers are not dropping. So your TSL seems to be very good tonight, Ian. Okay. The people right, are, people using are radio terms. Okay. And so I, I, and I'm, I'm enjoying this because obviously I'm, uh, I, I, uh, fancy myself a broadcast professional. And so I like to talk shop. And I'm well. You got ten whole viewers on our uh, Odyssey stream on the Free Talk Live side. So, well, you yeah. know, and that and that <laughs> and that coincides with our currently thirty nine uh, uh, over at uh, over on uh, Chris Cantwell on Odyssey. Um, Love life and anarchy sends ten dollars. Says wow. thanks for the informative discussion. Thank you very much, Love Life and Anarchy. And by the way, I, you know he's a very talented guy. Um, who has uh, lent his talents to me in the past. And uh, I'm, you know, one of the things that honors me the most is when artistic people will, you know, uh, uh, offer their artistic talents in support of what I'm doing. And so I, I, I really appreciate that Love, Life, and Anarchy. Thank you very much. You, you probably had some, like, fan art, that sort of thing, come into Free Talk Live over the years, right? You know, what happened in the early days, we would get uh, photoshops from people that would post them <laughs> on our forum, and uh, and that was kind of fun. That kind of dropped off the radar, though. We don't get a lot of that these days. Okay. Um, did you ever used to listen to Opie and Anthony? No. Uh, uh, I know you're a huge fan, but uh, I never really heard their stuff. About they Howard were, Stern. 
Uh, I watched his movie, Private Parts. I really enjoyed that film, um, but I never really was a listener of his. You I did. Never I did Howard see Howard Stern listener. No, okay, I'll take it back. I did see his E Entertainment show. You remember the TV show that he did for I E saw that, back yeah. in the late nineties? I've seen several episodes of that over the years, and that's what got me interested in seeing his movie. That's interesting. So you were never a you were never like a shock jock radio listener. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, I've certainly heard plenty of that stuff over the over the years on uh, various different morning shows and, and things like that. I mean, on on the, the uh, morning station zoo I is for. a different thing than like you know, yeah, you know what I mean. Like you know, the morning zoo is. I, I don't know if that's a if that's an industry term. term. It is an yeah. industry term. You know, yeah. um, you know, Opie and Anthony had this bit. They called it Cucktober. You know, or or no, I I called it Cucktober. <laughs> they called it Jocktober, right? And they would basically. Yeah go and like take these morning zoo radio shows and they'd make fun of them on the air and you know they mm-hmm. had this they made a mockery of it in in the way that the format was you know um i'm not going to be able to do it justice but if you want no, you, of course you, not. you 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 you'll get a good laugh as a radio guy if you search youtube for jocktober opie and anthony you should I'll make a note here jocktober yeah you'll enjoy that i promise so that was like a repeating bit that they would do? Uh, every October, they did every day of October, they would do the oh, Jocktober wow. bit. And so I looked forward all year to Jocktober, right? And so, like, and the thing is, the Opie and Anthony show, they had a lot of really talented listeners. And so, like, the, you mentioned photoshops and stuff. Like, what mm-hmm. would end up happening on in Jocktober, I guess, a couple of years into me listening to the show, was that the social media element got involved, right? So, like, all the Opie and Anthony listeners would go and bombard the Facebook pages of these radio shows with the oh, most wow. horrific imagery. <laughs> and, like, it, and and they'd end up in the newspapers about it, and then they were like, we got some ink, fellas, you know? <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> the local yeah. paper would pick up that the, that the local morning zoo had been, you know, attacked by these monsters of syndication. And so it was, uh, I, I loved, I looked forward all year to October and it was like it was Christmas you know and if so, you like that you'll probably enjoy if you like making fun of uh, morning shows and sort of the things that they do have you ever heard Phil Hendry the name rings a bell I, I, I don't I don't I couldn't tell you anything about him though Phil Hendry's hands down the most talented talk show host I have ever come across in the years that I've been listening to and in, in the business uh, he's still around he's not doing radio anymore he just does a podcast he uh, was no longer in syndication and just kind of started doing his own thing. But he was a well, and still is. He makes he does voices and he talks to himself while he does the show in these voices. So yeah. he's the host of the show, and he's also the crazy caller that he has on as a guest. And sometimes he's also his producer, and sometimes he's the general manager of the of the radio station. And so that's just sort of his his thing that he does. But every now and then he'll make fun of other talk shows. So like he would make fun of Art Bell, does a killer Art Bell impression. Um, and he would uh, do a morning show, which he called the Skippy and Frank morning show. It always open up with like heavy metal music and uh, Skippy and Frank just talking in uh, what, what we call in the radio business, puking, where you talk like this when you get this, uh, this sort of affectation. <laughs> So he would bring the puking into it, and uh, and they would always just do like the stupid crap that that morning shows would do. Except he would take it to you know an, an extreme where Skippy would end up killing himself on the air and like you know blasting it, putting a I'm gonna put a shotgun in my mouth, Frank, and like he, <laughs> he pulls the trigger on the shotgun. Just funny, funny stuff. Uh, recommend Phil Hendry. He is one of the uh, the most talented hosts of, of all time. 
That's funny, man. And like um, you, you mentioned, Art Bell. Have, what other like syndicated media personalities have you met in the course of your career? Like, been face to face with? There were and still are uh, Talkers Magazine. Still, it's one of the few radio industry publications that still exists. They're not in print uh, anymore, sadly. I found out. No, they haven't been for more than a decade, actually. Oh, okay. Um, I, I, I asked coming. my friend when I was in prison. I asked my friend to get me a, a subscription to Talkers Magazine so I could know what was mm -hmm. happening in the radio industry. Um, nope. Go ahead. Uh, so you go to these conferences with them, right? Yeah, we started going to those conferences in 2005, and they happened in New York City. Uh, in Manhattan, and uh, that's where the who's who, you know, the people, the pro some of the top program directors and the some of the talk talent comes there and, you know, the syndicate type people or whatever, the, they all kind of come to the same room and there's panel discussions and then there's the networking that, that goes on. I've met some hosts over the years, um, but I, I didn't really go to those events to meet the talk show hosts. I'm there to meet program directors I want to get my show on stations. I don't really give a damn what the the talk show hosts are there blathering about. Uh, but there was there was one year that they used to do this event. I don't know if they still do it because because of my bail conditions with the feds, I haven't been able to go to this convention for the last three years. But uh, but they used to do an event called the Talk Rumble, where they would take like eight or nine talk show hosts. Some of them were kind of like big city one-off hosts that didn't have a syndication gig. And some of them were syndicated type hosts and they would bring in like some progressives and some conservatives and, and put them on stage together and they'd have one host let, that was the moderator and he'd bring up topics and they just let them go, you know? So it was really, it was a lot of fun to watch that particular event. It was like one of the only things that, uh, it was particularly unique about this conference. Otherwise, it's just people sitting on stage talking. But to see, you know, to see nationally known talk show hosts actually having to interact with one another and and disagree and and have it out on stage, they put me up there for one year of that, I think, and uh, and that was fun because you know I I had a lot of fun up there. I had both Tom Hartman, who is a progressive talk show host, and uh, this guy named Todd Schnitt who was from, uh, he was syndicated for a while out of Tampa. Um, he was a conservative uh, host. I had both of them going at me on the immigration issue. So they were both on the same side of uh, immigration restrictions. So it was, it was fun to see the progressives and the conservatives agreeing on, you know, going against the libertarian view. But uh, I think I schooled them. Do you have any opinion on the success of conservative talk radio versus... Um, uh, I, I think it's a re relatively speaking anyway, progressive talk radio really hasn't taken off. Do you have any opinions on why that might be? Yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting question and an interesting thing to look at over the years. And having been doing a libertarian talk show for all of these years where they've attempted and failed at progressive talk, um, I've seen it up close because I have had a show that has been on both conservative and progressive stations you know besides kim commando who does computer talk or whatever and you know the garden show or whatever free talk live is really the only issues oriented talk show that has ever really crossed over to both the uh, conservative and progressive formats you know we we don't really fit on either format but we also fit because you know progressives will agree with us on some things and the conservatives will agree with us on some other things 
And on the other issues, they uh, tend to get angry at us and think that we're one or the other, right? Like, so the conservatives think we're, think we're uh, progressive communists and the progressives think we're uh, terrible conservatives. And so that's kind of a fun aspect to have. But I think these days, I think we only have like one progressive station on board uh, with the show. And there's probably no more than like three in the entire country. There, of course, was the failed Air America thing that happened 15 years ago at this point, And that was... Uh, this well-funded attempt to create a progressive talk network and get it on radio stations. And that uh, bombed within, I don't know, three years or something like that. That that came and it went. And, uh, and then there were sort of individual attempts in different markets by different uh, big companies like Clear Channel. So like in uh, Madison, Wisconsin... Clear Channel had an FM talk station that was formatted progressive talk because it's a progressive city, right? Like you would figure a station like that would work. But when Clear Channel ended up flipping that talk station to music radio, there was actually a protest in their parking lot by the progressives demanding that they put their talk radio back on the air. But the thing was, what they wouldn't do was buy advertising. So that's the reason why... The progressive talk went down the tubes was because they couldn't get advertisers to support that format, which is kind of an interesting thing. So it, that is and my that my is very why. interesting because I mean, you know the the you know sort of like left wing you know cultural narrative pervades throughout television. So you would think that you know that's you would advertisement sponsored. Um, but I I wonder you know I guess do you, I don't suppose you have any information off the top of your head about their listener statistics that probably has some information for the advertisers, I imagine. You're talking about in Madison? Uh, well, I would say about progressive, progressive radio in general. In general. I, something tells me, I, I think of con I think of conservative talk radio as a thinking man's media, okay? And like, it, it's an intellectually stimulating format, and I don't think the same thing about progressive talk radio. I, I think that, you know, you know, I, I do think that, oh, you know, NPR produces some well-produced stuff, and sometimes they go into some subject matter that, you know, you can learn something from. But, you know, it's propaganda, and it's it's actually designed to prevent you from thinking is sort of my experience or my perception of it in any case. And I don't think that that's, that's appealing in radio the same way it is in television, right? The, the television, you sit there, you veg out, you're fed the information, and you just mm -hmm. and you just you do it until something else comes up. Radio is like if it's not an intellectually stimulating format, it doesn't it doesn't take the same way. I think. I think you give conservative talk radio too much credit. I, I mean, figured you'd have that opinion, but I I, I think that uh, the the similarities between progressive talk radio and conservative talk radio are actually very similar in that they do similar types of shows. They, they, they follow the same rules for talk radio that we discussed earlier. And, uh, I think it's, it's, it's good that you brought up NPR because that's another factor in why progressive talk radio failed. That's fair. not only, not only could they not get local advertisers to come on board with their stations, but they probably also had a challenge bringing listeners over from their habit of listening to NPR as well. Um, NPR is very, very popular. And the thing is, when radio, uh, when radio gets its ratings from what is now Nielsen, it used to be called Arbitron, but uh, Nielsen purchased Arbitron. And uh, so Nielsen, the same company that does the TV ratings, now does radio. And you have to pay as a radio station group to get that those numbers 
they don't just hand them out. They'll, they might show you publicly what the 12 plus listener numbers, it's ages we're talking about, what the 12 plus listener numbers would be. You can get that information publicly, but any kind of breakdowns by demographic or time slot or anything like that, that only goes to stations who pay them tens of thousands of dollars a year for that. NPR doesn't pay for that. So NPR isn't rated. That's but, very significant. Yeah, I didn't but know But the reality is, if they were rated, they would do very, very well. Because when you what you what you can do with the ratings is, um, and I forget the term. You actually know the terms better than I do at this point. Time spent listening, yeah. and there's a share. That's what it's called, the share. So when you look at a share of a radio station on one of these rankings that they have, if you look at a market where it shows you the twelve plus rankings and the shares each of those stations have, it's rare that a station has more than five percent. And what that means is that in any given 15-minute time frame, there's no more than this percentage of people that are listening to the radio. So we're not talking about 5% of the entire population. We're talking about 5% of the people at any given moment that are listening to the radio are listening to WABC or whatever the, the station is. Some stations that are really ex ex you know, like excellent might hit 8%. And there may be some markets where like a country station is killing it with 10 or 11%. But if you go down that list and you add up all the percentages, five, three, two, four, five, you know, whatever they got, right? It won't come to 100%. And that's because what they're doing is they're getting, when they send out their books to people, which is still how they do it in most markets, they actually have people write down the things that they listen to. The bigger markets, they have an electronic measurement system that's different but the old way of doing it is they have the these panelists write it down and so panelists will write down npr right or whatever the the public radio station is that they're listening to all day all night they're npr supporters npr listeners so arbitron or nielsen is counting those numbers but they don't release those numbers because they don't get paid by uh, the public radio station so when you when you total up all the stations and you get i don't know 60% or whatever the number would be. I've actually never done it myself, so I don't know what it would total to. But the chunk that you don't see there, the the number, the percentage that is left over might be 30%. That could all be NPR. I don't know. That makes sense. So, you know, NPR doesn't have to be a, you know, commercial-laden format. They're sort of like, you know, they, right. they have They're these sponsored. very sharply produced thing. They're subsidized. They, you know, they yep. have their... Um, you know, their their revenue model is different than a commercial radio station must be. And so they're difficult to compete with and they're publishing fundamentally left wing propaganda. And it's difficult. Yeah, yeah, to, it's yep. difficult to run ads on your left wing propaganda when the competitor gives it away subsidized. That's interesting. Yeah. So I never I thought of it. I never thought of that yeah. before. That's interesting. Yeah, that's that's a fair that's a, that's a fair point. Um, but there are to, to be fair, there are a few progressive stations or progressive talk shows that still exist. Uh, and I don't follow it closely, so I don't know who they are right now, but like Tom Hartman, I think is probably still out there doing a show. And there was this girl named Stephanie Miller for some time. So there's like two or three of them. There's really, there's not even enough progressive talk show hosts that are in syndication to build an entire 24 hour a day radio station off of. So, you know, stations that have these hosts might be kind of like a mix station where you might have a progressive host and then a conservative host in a in you know a day long uh, situation, so there are very few purely progressive stations simply because there's just not enough content. 
Yeah. It's not out there. Um, the uh, All right. So when you are now, you're now you're still in Florida, you're syndicated on uh, beginning with three stations by GCN. You make the decision to move to New Hampshire. It doesn't That's affect right. your relationship with the broadcasters now because you're syndicated. You're going out over a over a uh, over a um, ISDN or a satellite or something like this. So you're, it yeah. doesn't it doesn't affect you that the the location then. No, we only had to take one uh, one night off. We drove. Uh, we finished the show on a Saturday night. This was at the time when we didn't have a Sunday show, and we uh, we'd already had the moving truck packed up. We packed up the studio, hit the road to New Hampshire, got here on. You know, 26 hours, drove straight through and just started unpacking. And we only missed the Monday show. We were on Tuesday night. So, yeah, the stations weren't weren't affected at all. And when you moved into the uh, into the studio, you have now how many stations were you syndicated on? God, I don't know. Um, Ballpark. It couldn't have been more than 10 or, or 12 or something like okay. that. Maybe maybe 20 at the most. In the course of uh, expanding this, I understand that GCN has some role to play in it, but you also play a role in, in gaining new... Do you, you describe them as affiliates? Is that is that, is that the industry term, your stations that carry you? Yeah, yeah, radio affiliates. Okay, so you're, you, you are um, engaged in the process of reaching out to potential affiliates and trying to get them to carry Free Talk Live, right? Yeah, I... You know, I, I'm somebody who believes firmly that if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. And that's what my life is, has always shown me to be the case. So as nice as the folks at Genesis are, the fact is they literally had, at the time, dozens of shows. Now, I think they've slimmed down their lineup since since this, you know, 15 years ago or whatever. But they had dozens of shows they were repping, trying to get on to different radio stations. And it's like, they can't do this as well as as I can do it. And so, uh, you know, I, I started going to uh, Radio Locator, radio-locator.com, which is a handy website that you can put in any city or zip code or whatever, and it'll show you what all the stations are. And, uh, and I just went in, I filtered out uh, the talk stations, and I made a, my own database of all the talk radio stations in the United States, and I just started calling them. How long did it take? I imagine this is an ongoing project, but like how long did it take you? It's something that you still do on a routine basis or that you have been doing up until recently, at least. Yeah, I haven't been focusing on it at all since the police raided, uh, you know, the FBI raided my house. Just because, you know, when you got that axe hanging over your head, it's hard to want to do anything, you know, as far as growing any kind of uh, opportunities. Five years Um, ago, safe to say, part of your daily routine was to update your database of radio stations. Yeah. And when you call the right, you would you would cold call these people, right? That's right. Yeah, you, you basically call, a sales job. You 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 call them up and you say, hey, you know, I'm uh, I'm Ian. I'm Free Talk Live, and I'd like to uh, I'd like to air any idiot with a phone on your station. <laughs> yeah, that's not the exact pitch. Pitch, pitch but, it. Pitch uh, it. Give me your pitch. What do you What do you call a radio station? What do you say, to the program manager? Uh, if you can get them on the phone, that's the first trick, right? Like you got to get through the gatekeepers <laughs> and you know. Get how the do you get? How do you do that? Tell me about it. Well, I mean, there some stations are pretty easy. The program director will just answer the phone. In other cases, they don't answer, and you got to leave a voicemail or or whatever, or talk to the secretary, and you know. Uh, so it's it's a challenge. But I actually there was like a book that I read about with some tips on you know doing these things. Anyway, uh, once before you, you move get, on, is yeah. the is the book specific to the to the task at hand or it's just like a sales book or what what are you talking about i think it was specific to to the task at hand but it's been so long since i remember since i read it anyway um you know 
most of it I developed on on my own through trial and error. And uh, you get the guy on on the phone, and you know, so, you know I'm so and so, the host of uh, Free Talk Live. Do you have a moment? Because I always want to respect somebody's time. You know, these yeah. guys are busy, and it's the same thing with any you know any business owner, any sales position that you're in. You want to be respectful of the person's time and their schedule. So I'd always ask if they had a moment. And if they did, then I'll go ahead and uh, and you know say, look, you know, I hosted the show. We're, we're syndicated. Would love to have you listen to the show and you know let me know what you think. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily ask them, oh, are you looking for a new show? Because no program director is looking for a new show necessarily at any given moment. Most of them have 24 hours a day, seven days a week programmed in when you pick up the phone and you call them. It's very rare that you're going to call a station and they're going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm looking to fill this. It does happen, but it's it's very, very rare. So what you want to do is you want to pitch the show to them to get them to listen, just to get them to sample the show so that, so you know what we're like for any future changes you might be considering. And, uh, and then they say, yeah, sure, send me a demo or whatever. And, you know, and then your next step is to follow up with them when they say, you know, you ask them when's a good time to follow up, you know, a couple weeks or whatever. Oh, no, call me in two months or, you know, call me next week. You know, there's a huge range of whatever they would say. And, uh, and so you call and you follow up and you get them back on the phone again, hopefully, or you keep trying uh, respectfully, and then you get them back on the phone again, and you ask them if they've listened, and they either have or they haven't, and or they don't even remember you, you know, from when you called before, and then you just start the process over again. And uh, if they have listened, then you ask them for you know what they thought, and would they consider putting it on the air on their station? And that's the that's the procedure, you know, the funnel, if you will, that you you put them down, and then if they say they would air the show, then well, are you making any? You're looking at any changes right now? No, no, we're not looking at any changes. You know, call me in six months or call me in you know three months, and then it's just follow up, follow up, follow up. It may take years of uh, cultivating a calling a, a specific individual before finally some talk show host croaks on the air or whatever, and then you know all of a sudden there's an opportunity. Uh, you know, I, I described us as the radio vulture. Whenever it was that some <laughs> some show host is getting fired or quitting their show or they've died, you know, Ian Freeman's going to call you up and uh, and ask for your for the uh, for the spot. But you know, it worked. Do you so. have like um, do you have like a Google News alert or anything like do you how do you do you try to track the deaths of talk show hosts so that you can swoop in? Do you just smell the decaying corpses? How do you do that? No, you hear about it. I mean, as you as you said, there's industry news out there, and I get news updates from Talkers Magazine. They send out a daily email giving you an updates on what's what's happening with uh, with the business. Who just left recently? Uh, oh God, I don't even remember who it was because it was noteworthy. But I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to call those stations. It's just not because of all the federal stuff going on. I don't know. Bongino, I think, was going to leave or something like that. Um, you know, they're leaving all the time. You know, guys. the Bongino thing was kind of interesting. I, I don't imagine you've listened to a great deal of Dan Bongino probably, right? No, no. All I know is about it. He used to be like a Secret Service agent or something. He, um, you know, they picked apart the carcass of the Excellence in Broadcasting Network. You know, him and, oh, yeah. him and um, you know, they took a long time to name a replacement for, for Rush Limbaugh. And during mm -hmm. the course of this, like, Dana Lash decided that she's going to start doing noon to three. And then Dan Bongino's uh, like, I could never fill Rush Limbaugh's shoes, but I'm going to start doing my show at noon to three anyway and start picking off yeah. his affiliates. And then, you know, it took them like weeks. It was like a, it was like a two month long, you know, funeral procession for Rush Limbaugh. They're just playing best of clips with Todd Herman and stuff. And I was furious about this. They like they ruined the entire asset. 
Um, but that's a that's another thing. Uh, and so you come to New Hampshire. You're you're cold calling people now. Now while you're cold calling affiliates, Mark Edge is selling the advertisements, right? It's sort of the division of labor there. Yeah, eventually he he was able to sell some ads. <laughs> eventually he was able to sell some ads. Well, it's not you can't g- come in with three talk sh- or talk stations and sell ads. I mean. Uh, the fact is, talk radio stations aren't really worth that much money, as far as you know, unless you get a WABC or some sort of massive uh, flamethrower, as they call it in the business. Uh, they, uh, you know, unless you get like a huge station on board, you're not going to be able to raise your rates. You know, I, you can have a dozen stations, and you can have three dozen stations, and it's not really worth that much more. So, uh, so yeah, there's, there's not a whole lot of money. I mean, it's, it's like a lot of people think it's, oh, it's so glamorous or whatever in talk radio and all these people are making all this money. And no, not really. Uh, my, uh, my mentor in the business told me, look, you're not going to make a living at this until 10 or 15 years in. And, uh, and that's true. And that, and that was just before he knew I was going to be a talk show. So that was just like working in radio. You know, you're, you're hand to mouth. You're barely, you can't even support a family until you've worked in radio for, you know, more than a decade. Yeah. And, you know, I, um, I was about to remark to the audience about how excellent I am at my job for, for getting there so much faster. But I, I've, I've kind of, I've been at this for a pretty long time now at this point. I keep on forgetting that I'm an adult. Um, <laughs> uh, and so, but how, well, you had to have tried to monetize it in other ways. Can you describe any of those? Um, yeah, well, certainly direct donations from, from listeners. I mean, that we started the free talk live amps program or amp program back in 2005. So we were having, inviting listeners to send us five bucks a month. Uh, I actually started with three and then we, uh, we upped it to five later because three, you know, payment processors take a huge chunk of $3. And so, uh, you know, $5 a month. And it's been that way since that time. Uh, we've had as many as like uh, hundreds of people donating to that. And right now it's probably like a hundred something. It's gone down over uh, over recent years. So, you know, things rise, things fall. And uh, that has changed. But it's it's been a great thing to have people be able to donate directly to the show. That way you don't have to rely on advertisers, uh, and you can just go straight to the to the listener, and that's that's obviously something that the internet has made possible, and that has made things like your show possible as well. Um, when you um, we've mentioned affiliate stations, there's also affiliate advertising, right? So, like you guys had, mm-hmm. I think it's shop.freetalklive.com. Can you tell us anything about that? We did. I, it doesn't do anything anymore, but yeah, for a time we did have Amazon uh, Associate or whatever the the terminology was, and then Amazon blew us out. At some point, they said, yeah, we don't need you anymore. Amazon kicked you off Amazon Associates? Yeah, they did. Yeah, that was years ago. Did they give you a reason? No. We speculated that the the reason is, well, you know, we've already gotten all these uh, customers from them. Why do we need to keep paying them? You know, like, get out of (laughs) here. You know they're big enough. We're we're small enough to where uh, it didn't really matter um, to them. Well, that's and, it, the inter- what the, what shocks me about it is my my understanding is that you know I, I didn't know that they were just you know pruning the hedges or whatever. It, it, I I got kicked off of Amazon for content, right? Like they saw me on Vice News and they were like, we don't want your your did they reputational say that to you? harm. Is it, that what they said? It, it coincided. It was Amazon okay. and the entire internet banned me. It was what happened. Mm, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they don't ever tell you the reasons for it. So they didn't. I mean, we don't know. We don't know why. Yeah. So that's that's interesting. Do you know if like you were embroiled in any controversy at the moment that happened? Nothing stands out. I don't remember when it was exactly, okay. but it's been it's been many years. 
Because I know for me, losing the Amazon Associates program really hurt. Like that was actually like I, I, I was getting, a, you know, I mean, it was hundreds of dollars a month, you know, and. and yeah. You know. Yeah. We were doing pretty well with it, too. I think we were up to up to that level, if not a little bit more at some points. Um, but yeah, it's gone. Christmas, but, yeah, things- you know, it's a big one for the Amazon thing. And so. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, you are doing the cold calling. You're calling the stations. Mark's calling the advertisers. You guys are starting to eke out a living at this thing. And um, you... And then Bitcoin. Okay. <laughs> so that's... that's a, I'm, thank you for bringing us to that point. So yeah. when did you first hear about Bitcoin and how? It was a caller who was calling from Australia who was himself a libertarian podcaster he called in uh, Jeremy West, I think was his name, and he called to talk about this thing called Bitcoin. And this was probably like 2010 or 2011. And just just as like an issue, you know, like something to talk about. And we talked with him about it. And and that was the end of that. And we moved on to whatever the other discussions were. Uh, we were skeptical, obviously, at the time. And then it came up again uh, in the news or something like that. It might have been the Silk Road I think that uh, that was that spurred the next discussion of it, and it was then that I think we started to take it more seriously. But more importantly, it was Roger Veer who was our listener and sponsor of the show. Uh, he had a company called Memory Dealers. He was like a professional computer uh, wholesaler of, of RAM, and that was what his business was. And he heard us talking about Bitcoin with this with these callers, and he spent. I've heard him tell the story on the air on, on different interviews. And he spent a week of his life without really sleeping, researching Bitcoin, you know, just getting deep into it before he decided to buy some of it. And he bought, I don't know how many thousands of dollars worth, but he was a very successful businessman up until that point. So he had some money to play with. And so he bought a lot of Bitcoin at a very, very cheap price. I think it was less than a dollar a coin at the time that he got in. And uh, he came to us. He was already a sponsor of the show. And he came to us and said, look, I want you guys to start accepting Bitcoin as you know, as my sponsorship money. And we said, I said, well, how about we take 10%? And uh, <laughs> so if I had taken 100% in Bitcoin right when Roger Veer uh, offered it, we probably would have had, well, 10 times as, uh, as much of it. But eventually he did get us moved up over time. I don't remember how long it took for him to get us from 10 or 15% all the way up to 100% in Bitcoin. But we did get there at some point. I'm, uh, I'm really grateful that Roger dragged us in. Uh, at the same time, we had Gavin Andreessen, who was a uh, early Bitcoin programmer. He was the guy that Satoshi Nakamoto turned over the keys to, essentially, the when Satoshi disappeared from public view. Gavin was the sort of the um, the inheritor of the code at that point. And he is a libertarian uh, guy who also was a Free Talk Live listener. He also happens to live in Amherst, Massachusetts, about an hour and a half south of here. And so he was able to come up here. Uh, he invited us out to lunch. He said, want to you know, answer all your questions about Bitcoin. So he took us out to the Thai Garden on Main Street in Keene. And Mark and I, this was probably like you know, 2011, 2012, somewhere in that range. And Mark and I uh, asked him answer. Uh, he asked all our answered all our questions, you know. Like, uh, well, my, I know my big objection was what backs Bitcoin. You know, it's not gold, it's not silver. What what backs Bitcoin? And you know, he knocked all these answers out of the park, and and he paid Mark I think like twenty seven Bitcoin 
for the <laughs> for the dinner because Mark paid cash to Ty Garden and uh, you know Mark got twenty seven <laughs> Bitcoin out of that. So you know these were the early days and <laughs> and that's what brought us in. You know at that point then then I was finally able after meeting with Gavin I was finally able to really kind of see the vision for uh, for humanity. You know the, for the for empowering the individual and disempowering the government money system and the bankers and the central banks of the world. So that was really what kind of sealed the deal. Now, as I said at the beginning of the show, you have a very fascinating history, and I've and I've and I've tried to tease out a lot of detail here. Can you just give me a rough idea of when I got to let you go? I I, I don't want to be disrespectful of your time. Um, I'm probably going to have to eat something at some point, so let's do another half hour if we okay. Uh, half an hour, I've got yep. okay. So, um, I when you first start accepting the the Bitcoin the payments in Bitcoin from Roger Veer, who uh, he yeah. er, earned the moniker Nick uh, Bitcoin Jesus at some point, right? He did, yeah. And so he's paying you. He was sponsoring your show, and he's paying you ten percent of this in Bitcoin. And at the time, mm -hmm. it's not easy for you to spend Bitcoin. What, what year is this? Yeah, it had to be 2012. Okay, so in 2012, you're receiving this. When I first heard about Bitcoin, I was like a Ron Paul guy. It's 2012 you're talking about, mm -hmm. right? And so I'm like, what are you talking about? Private sector fiat currency? Get out of here. I'm a gold <laughs> bug, right? Get that stuff out of here. And it wasn't uh -huh. until you could buy cocaine with it that I believed it was money. Um, That's true for me, too. Um, I mean, I was never into cocaine, but, uh, but when I heard about the Silk Road, that was when I realized... This is a killer app. The Silk Road was Bitcoin's killer app. And I and I firmly believe that Ross Ulbricht is second to Satoshi Nakamoto in the importance to the history of Bitcoin as a successful uh, project. If it weren't for Ross Ulbricht and the Silk Road, I don't know how long it would have taken for uh, for Bitcoin to become what it is today. That's what it was. If you can buy drugs with it, it's money, right? But and I wasn't smart enough at the time, Chris. I, even though I realized that this is an awesome killer app, this is a perfect you know combination, I totally understood. I totally got the value of the Silk Road. I never bought any Bitcoin for myself at that time. But luckily, we were earning the Bitcoin. So you know, uh, we just held on to it. Yeah, I think that people who were in media sort of got lucky in that sense, right? Like, you know, I, there was the idea that you would go out and spend dollars to get Bitcoin was sort of a weird idea, I think, for a lot of people. And and and, and it wasn't easy or, to do that either. Right. right? Like the um, huh? when you were when you were receiving this Bitcoin, um, it, what how if, if it was on the Silk Road, you may decline to answer. But like, how were you able to use the Bitcoin at that during that time? Uh, it was actually really easy in New Hampshire because, as you uh, recall, the New Hampshire was sort of this hot spot even early on for cryptocurrency. And that's because Bitcoin appealed in the earliest days. Now it appeals to any bro that you know wants to see number go up. But in the early days, it was just a tech project. So it was techno libertarian anarchists that were the ones, these uh, these crypto anarchist types that were the ones that were the early adopters of Bitcoin. And it's something that has shifted the, the sort of the, the power of the libertarian movement, especially in New Hampshire. I mean, libertarians used to be hand-to-mouth poor, but uh, because they got into Bitcoin early on, a lot of them are, I don't know how many Bitcoin millionaires there are in New Hampshire, but I bet there's a bunch of them. I bet there's a bunch of libertarian Bitcoin millionaires here who are very, very quiet 
about how many uh, you know bitcoins they held on to from those early years. But as far as spending them, it was easy to spend. In fact, a lot of the libertarians up here uh, grouse about how they spent all of their bitcoins early on because it was easy to do. If you attended the Porcupine Freedom Festival in 2012 or 2013 or 2014, you know, you could buy tacos for uh, for Bitcoin. You could buy uh, shakes for Bitcoin. You could buy T-shirts for Bitcoin. I've got old Bitcoin shirts that I bought at the Porcupine Freedom Festival. I spent a whole Bitcoin on. You know, yeah. now they got holes in them. Yeah, <laughs> I've, like, I've probably spent a couple of Bitcoins with Mandrake, Mandrake on the uh, on the gyros. You know. Yeah, absolutely. So, so my sixty thousand dollar gyro habit. Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, it was it was to the point where Roger Veer showed up at uh, some of these Porcupine Freedom Festivals. I remember one year he had the physical Bitcoins, which are the sort of gimmick uh, that came out a long time ago. And when they came out, they were $3 a piece. Roger Veer gave me a stack of those things and told told me, hand them out to the people, uh, the activists in Keene. Uh, I mean, so it, they were all over the place. And so it wasn't hard, given the libertarian community here, uh, not just at the Porcupine Freedom Festival, but you know, you, if you want to, you hire your friends to do housework or whatever stuff is going on, right? Like people do different things for their for their for a living, and and so it, yeah, it wasn't hard to spend them. Uh, I, I I had originally moved here in 2012, as you know, and I mm -hmm. saw you guys like that was the first time I had ever seen Bitcoin exchanged among individuals in an economy. I, right. I had seen, you know, I had hung out with Adam Kokesh, and Adam Kokesh is like, look at these drugs I bought. I'm going to smoke them on camera, you know. <laughs> like, you know, that was what yeah. I knew about Bitcoin, and I was like, oh, right. you know, that, and as I said, you, you agree, you know, that that had a real impact on the on the uh, on the perception of the currency, positive and negative, I'd say, but I, I think that the, the positive outweigh, once your money, you know, it's kind of difficult to to say no to you. Um, well, well, that's what we did here is we took it to that next level. It wasn't yeah. just an online currency that was just barely used anywhere except for drug markets. In New Hampshire, it was used amongst the libertarian community, which was always growing and adoption was growing. And But also it wasn't long before we were able to get uh, Corner News, the uh, the hundred-year-old Corner uh convenience store here, a little neighborhood convenience store in downtown Keene on Main Street, we were able to convince the owner of that uh, shop to take Bitcoin as payments. And this was around the time that they were starting to have Bitcoin payment processing sort of systems available. And she had always been kind of a, fr a freedom-friendly person. She loved cop block uh, she, she was uh, willing to sell silver at her store. She had like some cop block shirts up on her, her t-shirt rack. So she was like a natural constituency for approaching for Bitcoin. And, uh, and Daryl Perry ap approached her about it and, and managed to, uh, to, I think, convince her to, to come on board. Unfortunately, she actually quit taking Bitcoin when the crash happened last Was it last year? 2021. Oh. Um, but, uh, which was really disappointing. And uh, but anyway, that's that's one of the points that is really important is that Keen started having real life normal folks who weren't just the libertarian community that were willing to accept Bitcoin at their businesses. And even though the feds came and raided uh, you know, multiple people's homes in 2021 over this over Bitcoin sales, uh, and that did put a bit of a dampener on the the Bitcoin community here in Keene, and I think statewide to to some extent. We've lost a couple businesses over the years, but that's in a lot of ways because I wasn't around to service them, which is one of the things that I did as part of my church mission was providing uh, 
free customer service essentially to business owners who are having trouble or had questions or you know they are having an issue with the tablet at the register or or whatever right like just that was just what I was doing and there really wasn't anyone else that that was able to pick up that ball after I was in in jail Chris Wade from think penguin has done it to some extent but he's a busy business owner himself and didn't have time to really focus in on it so we have lost a couple of businesses but we still have it we still got a you know you can still get your car repaired for crypto here in Keene. you can st we still got a dentist that's accepting it there's still a couple of places that'll sell you food for uh for crypto and a couple of convenience stores so local, uh, local you know. burgers still accept bitcoin no they're no. one of the ones we lost uh we lost them during covid because they used to be a uh a place that we went to every week for a social meetup and they, they got all crazy about the masks. And so we're like, well, screw this. We're, uh, we're going to go somewhere else. And uh, we ended up going to a restaurant in town called Fa Keen Great. That was so much fun. I'm, I appreciate and, that you spaced it out. Due yes. To, yes. For, for, for surreal politics. Um, well, real before you go into the other restaurant, and they did now, take Bitcoin. So, like, Sorry, go ahead. but the 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 fact of all these businesses, this is an important part of the story, I think. So, like, you, I think I don't know if you had a relation. Do you have like an affiliate relationship with? I think because I think that wasn't Local Burger using like a coin based point of sale system or something like that, or or do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, I exactly. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, early on. The businesses in town were using BitPay. 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 Okay. Coin, Coinbase did have a point of sale system, but they abandoned it at some point. Okay. And it was relatively early on that they abandoned it. BitPay had one, and I believe they still do. But at the time, it was only Bitcoin that was accepted through the BitPay app. This was before Bitcoin Cash had even become a thing. So pre 2017. Bitcoin was all there was. And honestly, it was all you needed. You know, Bitcoin fees were were low at that time and, you know, everything worked fine. And so they had a, a an app that you could install on a tablet. And that's what we installed at places like Local Burger and, and Corner News and the earliest, the earliest people that came on to adopt. And of course, uh, your listeners that are familiar with the history of cryptocurrency would know that in 2017, uh, prices of the Bitcoin fees started to go insane to the point of five, 10, 15, 20 dollars per transaction. And it was at that time that I, I'm like, well, this is not good. Uh, you know, who wants to spend? You're gonna buy a $10 burger and fries at local burger and then have to pay five, five to ten dollars on top just to send a Bitcoin transaction. No one is going to do this. Not even the Bitcoin, you know, uh activists were willing to pay those kind of fees. So it essentially killed any kind of Bitcoin spending that had been going on in Keene. I'm like, oh man, what are we going to do? And luckily, uh, our old buddy Derek J. Freeman and his uh, partner, uh, Stephen, uh, they came came up with AnyPay in 2017 as a competitor to BitPay. Because we had asked BitPay, like, hey, uh, BitPay, are you guys going to add any other currencies here? Because, you know, like, you know, Dash was a thing at that time. But BitPay said, nah, Bitcoin's fine. And then, you know, they didn't do anything. They did end up adding Bitcoin Cash later to BitPay, but it was well into 2018 before they finally did that. And we're like, well, we need a solution now for these business owners that we have taking Bitcoin, but now aren't getting any Bitcoin sales. We got to, you know, rescue these guys. And so Derek J and uh, and his partner came up with a solution, and they came up with AnyPay that basically aped what BitPay was doing and did the exact same thing. There's like a tablet where you punch in the cashier punches in the total sale, and then they 
Uh, they shoot that out. You still with me, Chris? Okay. Yes, I'm still you with you. I, I'm okay. seeing high CPU usage, and I'm closing browser yep. tabs in an effort to, to solve it. Yeah, I saw it. you freeze. I saw you freeze up there. So uh, they they came up with this app, and it was right on time, like right as these Bitcoin price uh, network fees were going up. They introduced AnyPay, and they introduced it with Bitcoin and Dash at the time. And so Dash came to the rescue in a big way. And my worry at the time, because I was the primary guy, you know, like I was saying, I was doing the consulting with the businesses and helping them get set up. And I was the guy that would call if there was any problems, right? So like, you know, I, I had personal relationships with all these business owners that were taking Bitcoin in town. And my, of course, biggest concern was people know about Bitcoin, but what are these business owners going to say when I come in and say, hey, there's this thing called Dash over here, and like you could take Dash too in addition to Bitcoin. We know you've never heard of Dash, but maybe you want to do this. And I wasn't sure how it was going to go, you know, because uh, Dash didn't have the same kind of recognition. Nothing had the same kind of recognition of, of Bitcoin. Like the average person had heard of Bitcoin, but they hadn't heard of any of these other ones. So I figured I was going to have some failures, right? Like they were going to say, nah, this isn't working out, you know? Bitcoin yeah, yeah. was cool, but... Now it's not cool. No one's using it. And I was really pleased when every single business owner was like, yeah, we'll take Dash. But they, and, but so like my understanding was AnyPay didn't or, or did AnyPay transfer the coins into dollars? Because the, the benefit no. of BitPay, of course, was that like you could just That's true. They, like you get the, the it's transparent for the business owner unless they decide that they want to hold some of the Bitcoin. I remember. Right. Is it Robin yep. own Corner News? Is that her, her name? Uh, Roberta. Roberta, yeah. okay. No, but you're right. That was a t key difference between AnyPay and BitPay. BitPay does allow business owners to decide what percentage of their uh, coins that they convert instantly to cash and put in a bank account versus keep as uh, as their cryptos. Whereas with AnyPay, it was all crypto. You had to figure out how to, you know, if you wanted to cash it out, you'd have to do that on your own. But most of the business owners, you know, they weren't getting a lot of Bitcoin business, but they were getting some probably, you know, less than a percent of their their monthly revenue would be in in crypto. So for most of them, it wasn't a big deal to just, you know, shovel it into a wallet and sit on it. Um, it's very rare. Excuse me. It's very rare that uh, that a business owner would actually cash it out. There were a couple in town, like the the auto guy, the, the guy that runs the automotive dealer or not automotive dealer, but uh, repair shop Wilder Automotive. He's got to buy parts and and pay his guys, and the bills are a lot higher there, right? So like, you got a thousand dollar bill and you pay it all with crypto. He is taking some of that and, and cashing it out, but most of them were just sitting on it. At least from my conversations with them. Right. Okay. Yeah. So and that's what we did differently here was we we brought businesses on board and really did create a uh, a real kind of local economy. It's a, it was a small one, but it did get to the point, Chris, where uh, I was really proud when I I started hearing stories from the business owners that were actually spending their coins locally with other businesses. And one of the the best examples was, uh, you know, those maps that they have around town that are like, there's a drawing of Keen and there's local businesses all around the map that have sponsored the map. And, you know, it's just a, it's just an ad venue, but it's a, it's a handy thing for visitors, for instance. And there was one guy making a competitive map. So there was two maps in Keene. There was the one that had been here forever. And then there was the new guy. And the new guy was willing to take uh, willing to take Bitcoin. So I started buying ads to promote like the Bitcoin meetups that we were having in town, and he started approaching the other businesses that were already accepting Bitcoin, and then telling them, "Hey, I'll take Bitcoin for advertising." And so before you know it, Local Burger and Corner News and Wilder Automotive, all these businesses that were taking uh, Bitcoin, 
had spent their Bitcoin to buy advertising in the area. So we actually ended up having a business-to-business uh, way for these guys to spend their Bitcoin. And I thought that was just such a cool thing. It is a cool thing. And yeah. I, you know, there are these websites where you can go on like uh, to, to see where you can spend Bitcoins. I'm sure you're yeah. familiar with these things. Coin map. There's, there's nothing comparable to what happened in New Hampshire, right? Uh, not in the United States. Not in the United uh, in, States. In, uh, right now, it, I would say the most that I've heard of is St. Kitts and Nevis and okay. St. Um, Martin, Martin down in the Caribbean where the Bitcoin cashers have really gotten tremendous adoption down there. What happened there, it, and it was recent too, so this is still, as I understand, it's still going because uh, you do have attrition over time when, like, if people don't come in and spend the coins, then the business owners are going to just say, all right, well, that's enough of that. So you have to have that economy. You have to have that community of people who's willing to go and spend them. And uh, Roger Veer spends a good chunk of his year down in uh, in Nevis and in, in St. Uh, Kitts. And he met this guy who is the liquor distributor on these islands. Like, he's a wholesaler liquor guy. And, you know, business is all about who you know. And right. this guy knows everybody. He knows every restaurant. He knows the guy behind Burger King. You know, like he, he's, he, they literally have Burger King taking Bitcoin cash in St. Martin. So like you, you go to the Bitcoin cash map and there's like 150 businesses on this little island that's got, you know, 30 or 50,000 people or something living there. So they put Keen to shame on uh, on that island, but Keen put most of the rest of the United States to shame, including big cities like Boston, where we had more, and we may still have more, I'd have to, I'd have to check, we have more raw numbers of businesses accepting, uh, accepting cryptocurrency in Keen than cities like Boston and, and other Miami and other places like that. Uh, and if you do it by capita, then we blow them out of the water. But in most of these places, we just had more raw numbers than they did. And and so that's an important point, too. So even within New Hampshire, Keene is unique in this, right? That that I don't think that you can spend Bitcoin nearly so easily in Manchester as you can in Keene. And that's a consequence of the uh, work that you and your guys have been doing, right? Yeah. Uh, Portsmouth is number two in New Hampshire, and that's because Derek J., uh, ultimately moved out of Keene and moved into Portsmouth, and that's where they co-founded AnyPay. And Derek and Stephen were powerhouses going around getting uh, businesses on board. We were neck and neck with uh, Portsmouth for some time, but unfortunately, after the feds raided in 2021, uh, understandably, Derek and Stephen took off to other locations <laughs> around the world. And Portsmouth, oh. again, without somebody that without somebody there to hand uh, handhold the business owners and be there as a support uh, mechanism for them they will attrition and so Portsmouth has uh, has had more attrition since uh, 2021 than Keene has now one of the things that you did to sort of help this adoption along you had what I think that they are termed they're not Bitcoin ATMs they're Bitcoin vending machines right is the yeah we uh, I I feel like we came up with that terminology because it's more descriptive of what is actually going on. I mean, if you think about it, an ATM is a thing where you go, you have an account, you identify yourself as the account holder, and then you withdraw funds or deposit funds into your account, uh, mostly withdrawal at, uh, at ATMs, and the bank gets a fee for that. A Bitcoin vending machine is where you go put cash into the machine and are vended a product, a digital product that is a free speech based mathematical 
formula, right? Like this is math. Bitcoin isn't quote unquote money. It's math. It's numbers on a ledger. Yeah. And uh, and you get this digital product out into your wallet. So it is essentially a vending machine. And and the uh, the New Hampshire Banking Commission agreed with that assessment. We put that out there into the media in New Hampshire. And when the banking department, which is the regulators, uh, they saw this story about the Bitcoin vending machines, they never said boo to us about regulating that here in New Hampshire. And in fact, when they were called into the state house to speak to the state reps that were on the crypto commission here in, in New Hampshire in 2016, their representative, Marion Torben Desfosis, specifically said, and at the time, the Shire Church was the only church that had, was the only anybody that had vending machines in New Hampshire. So she was talking about us. She says, we don't regulate that. It's no different than a candy bar or, you know, a soda pop or whatever. You put money in the machine. The machine has its own, what you call hot wallet. So we weren't connecting users to other exchanges and then being an intermediary that might actually have qualified as money transmission. If we were doing that, we weren't doing that. Uh, you were buying, if you were buying from the church's vending machines, you were buying straight from the church's uh, Bitcoin inventory. And so she said, we don't regulate that. And so but apparently the federal government disagreed. But if you were so I think the important distinction here or one of the important distinctions is that if you were in the if you were in the habit of like um, if if the Bitcoin vending machine would do it in the other way, if if it gave you dollars in exchange for Bitcoin, that's another distinction, I believe, in the in the legalese of it, is it? Um, not really. Uh, we actually ended up going that direction in the oh, okay. years prior to uh, the raid. Uh, we had a two-way machine. Actually, we had two two-way machines here in Keene. And the idea there is you're just buying inventory. You're buying, you know, customers willing to sell you inventory that you can then turn around and, you know, sell to other uh, other customers. So I understand one of the accusations that that you're that you're met with in the course of the case is that you're acting as a as a money transmitter. And it's it's my understanding that this was something that. This is not like an anarchist disregard for the law is what I'm trying to convey. Like y you actually were attempting to comply, right? You, you understood what the rules were. You're trying to obey them, right? We actually did research, legal research. We hired an attorney in 2017 um, to determine whether or not we needed to do anything at all about money transmission rules at either the state or the federal level. And our attorney uh, came up with a four-page you know, research on this question. He looked into it and he said, no, uh, you guys are not doing money transmission. You're not, uh, you know, the money transmission is a very specific definition. Not only are you not doing money transmission, you don't even qualify under a money services business. So money transmission is just one of many, uh, I think there's like a, a through H or something like that in the federal code, which defines what a quote unquote money services business is. So like check cashers and, you know, uh, money transmission and, you know, exchange, foreign exchange. There's these different things, uh, buying a, a money order and things like that. And, you know, you don't qualify here, 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 here. You don't qualify under any of this stuff because you're just selling a product to people. That's, you know, that's all you're doing. And even if, and this is one of the things that we tried to argue in the case, but the jury just didn't care. Uh, even if you accept the federal government's opinion, and that's all that law is, right? A, a law is just an opinion backed by a gun. So you accept the federal government's opinion, which is, by the way, 
just to judge's opinion, there's no federal, actual federal law about cryptocurrency at this point. None. But they're trying to shoehorn cryptocurrency users and businesses and entrepreneurs and programmers into the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. These guys are bringing lawsuits all over the industry. You and I, Chris, could do a whole other show yeah. on just the federal government attacking cryptocurrency right now. It's crazy what they're doing. But then there's the, the quote-unquote Justice Department who's bringing actual criminal cases against individuals in most cases who are selling Bitcoin online, calling them money transmitters. But every one of them that I researched and I heard about it as I was selling Bitcoin through the vending machines and through local Bitcoins online, I heard about the stories of the other sellers getting arrested. And every story I heard about, they all took a plea deal. And every story I heard about also involved an undercover agent posing as a heroin dealer and then the person selling them Bitcoin. And I'm like, well, I know better than that. I'm not, they're not going to catch me with that one. And I'm not taking a plea deal. So we're going to find out, you know, whether money transmission applies in this case. And there's a, some federal judge at some point decided that Bitcoin is quote unquote funds under the money transmission statute. It's not money. It's not, or it's not currency, because currency is defined as money of the government, right? Of any government around the world. That's what a currency is that's, by that's, their definition. That's the legal definition when you're working, working in a courtroom. It's the government's money is currency, and then these are funds they're using. They're, it seems like they're making it up as they go along, almost. They are and, and making I, it up as they go along. And, and, I'm, and I'm saying that in all sincerity. This is not—I I understand— like. Free Talk Live has jargon. It, it sounds like jargon to most people. You talk about people getting kidnapped in terms of being arrested, but like, mm -hmm. you know, and I understand the the reasoning behind that. It's not something that I mean to dispute, but like, yeah. you know, it, it seems to me that when a judge says, well, this is funds and these are currency and that is money, this is like, this is to, well, I, I imagine that you probably agree with some level of this. To me, this sounds like when people are trying to draw the distinction between sex, sex and gender. It's it's like it's this ideological. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like they're coming up with these ideas. But yeah, like, and this in this case, the ideological aspect is well, we want to control this, so we're going to just go ahead and say it's something that it's not, just because it's convenient. And I'm a judge, and uh, you know the Supreme Court will have to overturn me on this if they uh, if they disagree with it. The the term currency is defined in the statute. So you can look that one up, but the term funds is actually not defined at all. And so the judge has just said that this is funds. And so the judge in the crypto six case, which is by the way, what we called the whole thing where six people got arrested on, uh, in March of 2021 for this, but the judge in our case just adopted that other judge's opinion and said to the jury that Bitcoin is funds. And so then the question becomes, if it is funds, and I dispute that it is, because again, as you and I discussed, it's math, it's free speech, it's definitely not funds, but let's go ahead and accept that it is, just for the sake of, uh, of argument. Then the question is, does it fit, whatever it does, does it fit the definition of transmission? And there is a definition for transmission, and the definition for transmission, now, I'm not a lawyer, this is coming off the top of my head, uh, is Sort of the sort of the Western Union thing where, you know, you go into a place and uh, you put money into this third party and you say, I want to send it to so-and-so at this location. So it's moving from one person to another person or it moves from one location to another location. Either of those things, if either of those things is true, 
The federal government and most state governments consider that to be money transmission. Now, when it comes to Bitcoin and most cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin does not move from a person to another person. It moves from a account to another account, and it doesn't actually move. And that's the most important thing. We say when we do, uh, and again, we try to explain this to the jury, but when, when we talk about Bitcoin, we use terms like send and receive, and the wallets have these you know names on them, send and receive. You think something's moving. But it's no, actually just, not. It's it's numbers on a publicly viewable ledger. The and here's the other thing. The ledger, it doesn't even move on the ledger. This I didn't mm. even know until, you know, recently, because I didn't I'm not an engineer. I've never looked into how the Bitcoin ledger actually operates. It just, you know, it works. So whatever. Uh, but it as it turns out, from having done the research on this, when you quote unquote send Bitcoin. You would think, oh, it's moving from this part of the ledger to this other part. There's this one wallet over here, and there's this other wallet over here. So it's moving on the ledger, so therefore money transmission. No, it doesn't even move on the ledger. What happens when you quote-unquote send Bitcoin is it is removed from where it was on the ledger associated with whatever wallet it was associated with, and then it is recreated in the exact same spot associated with a different wallet. It doesn't move Ever. Well, hang on a second. So, well, I'm not going to dispute your point. I, 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 we're short on time, and you've be sure. been very generous with me already, so I'll, I'll accept that. Uh, you, you're aware we could debate the technicalities of what you just said, and, and I think it would be an interesting discussion, but I'm, sure. I'm, I'm very grateful for the time that you've spent already. Um, you find yourself in this legal hot water uh, the, the reason that you're having to raise these arguments in the first place mm -hmm. is because the the federal government sends somebody to to come and try to buy Bitcoin from you. What what how do you end up into <laughs> how do you end up in this jam? Somebody comes, tries to buy Bitcoin from you, says I'm a they drug dealer. They always do this. OK, so they do this in every case. They always send an undercover agent. He acts normal. He buys Bitcoin normally for some number of times so you you know create a relationship with the person and then he drops the bomb in and he says I'm a Russian heroin dealer <laughs> and and the guy was actually from Belarus or whatever so he had the accent he had the whole look or or whatever and uh and at that point when he said this it was actually at a meetup that we had here in Keene uh what we called nightcap where we were protesting in Keene Central Square we were we were uh, going out during the quote unquote stay at home here in during COVID and we were just throwing a party every week in Central Square. And he'd already been to one of our Bitcoin meetups, but then he shows up at this nightcap and people are drinking and they're smoking or whatever. And he's having a conversation and he just drops into the conversation that he's a heroin dealer. And I heard it. And so, um, you know, and you had later, already heard about the stories of uh, other people falling in. for Absolutely. This trap. Yeah. Absolutely. I knew exactly what their their playbook was. And so, uh, you know, and then he contacts me a month later and he says, uh, hey, can I buy some Bitcoin from you? And I said, nope, sorry, uh, I can't do that. Look, I don't care what you do, but you told me you're a heroin dealer. And so if I were to sell you Bitcoin, that would be money laundering. Okay. That would be textbook money laundering. Sorry. Can't help you anymore. Like, oh, I thought you were cool, man. You know? And so that was the end of that. Or so I thought, then he shows up again a month after that, he comes back to another one of our meetups and he, at the end of the meetup, he comes up to me and he says, 
Oh, hey, Ian, do you still have the uh, Bitcoin vending machine at the Thirsty Owl in, uh, in Keene? I was like, yeah, it's still there. And he said, well, can I use it? And I said, I can't tell you you can use that, okay? And he said, all right, okay. And that was the end of the conversation. And I figured that was it, you know? And turns out he went to that location, dropped $20,000 into that machine, and they said that was money laundering. They said that that action of non-action of telling somebody essentially, no, you can't do that, uh, was money laundering. The prosecution essentially said, well, you didn't tell him no hard enough. I mean, it was ridiculous. And that's the charge, thankfully, that the judge just threw out. Um, do you have a, an approximate number of miles between you and this transaction? Yeah, actually, at the time, uh, we were having a meetup at the a place in Hillsborough, New Hampshire, which is like 40 minutes from here. So, I don't know, 20-something miles uh, away. So this guy comes, asks you if he can do it. You're like, I can't do this. You, you know, you're asking me to commit a crime. He goes over and he drives 40 drives minutes away, does it yeah. outside of your presence, and, and you're convicted of a, of a yeah, felony. Yeah, the jury convicted me that, of that crap. That was a 20-year charge or something to this effect? Up to 20, years, Up for, to 20 uh, years for money laundering. Now, they got me for another money laundering as well that hasn't been overturned at this point, but we're hoping it will be at, at some point, whether it's on appeal or whatever. The other money laundering count is basically they said, well, Mr. Freeman knew that people, old people were being scammed and he didn't do anything about it. In fact, he was willfully ignorant. Okay, we don't have any evidence of uh, Freeman working with these scam artists, but we believe that he was selling Bitcoin and respecting people's privacy because he knew scam artists were using his services. Even though we don't have any evidence whatsoever of this, we're going to, you know, suggest by bringing a bunch of elderly people up to tell their stories about how they got scammed on the Internet and then ultimately bought Bitcoin from from me, who was a top seller on localbitcoins.com with literally thousands of sales under under my belt and 1,700 customers over five years. Literally one to two percent of these people turned out to be scam victims, but they trotted them out, trotted them up on the stand. And I think the jury just wanted to send somebody up the river for this because they were able to convict me on what was called willful ignorance. And the idea there is it's not even in the law. It's just one of these court things. The idea there is something was happening so obviously is the idea behind willful ignorance and that you turned a blind eye to something you had to know was happening. You're guilty. And it even said in the jury instructions that negligence and mistake do not count for willful ignorance. And we showed them that we actually called a witness up that uh, was the son of an old lady who we stopped a transaction mid-happening. She was about to lose $11,000 of her life savings to a, to a scam artist, but we were able to identify it. Uh, before it happened, we froze the transaction. We did not give the Bitcoin to the, uh, the person who was pretending to be this old lady, and we saved her and got her $11,000 back to her. And that was one example we had, you know, that happened on more than one occasion where we actually stopped scams from occurring. I had a whole know your customer procedure in place where I asked questions of uh, these people. I had phone conversations with them. I mean, we did everything we could to identify these scams that were happening and we're successful on some occasions, but we weren't successful on all of them. 
And uh, and so that's what they were saying. Well, you're willfully ignorant. And the jury the jury bought it, and they uh, they convicted me of that one too. How, and how much tax how much uh, how much money would you have to earn to live with yourself at night to to steal from an old lady? I mean, I don't know how well these scammers do, but they seem to do very very well uh, for themselves. And I, I mean, they, for you, what what would the dollar amount have to be above before you would willingly steal from senior citizens? I would never do anything like that. Obviously, I mean, I have grandparents, and I can empathize with uh, with people. I would never do something like that. That's why we tried to stop it uh, from happening when we learned about these scams. You don't get you don't get a, a how to guide when you start selling Bitcoin on the internet. You got to learn the hard way. And uh, and we were victims of scams, too. Uh, in fact, we were victimized by these same scam artists. I remember I didn't tell this story in court, but I remember one time one of these scam artists actually called me on Telegram and laughed at me because he had taken me for, you know, like a hundred thousand dollars or or something like that. And I I think he was he had like an Indian accent or uh, or something. I couldn't quite identify the part of the world that uh, that he was coming from, but he was pretending they would pretend to be the people that we thought were actually legitimately buying from us. But the really the really crazy thing was that we learned and by the way, I didn't know the supermajority of these people that were scam victims, I had no idea until we got discovery in this case. The only time I would ever find out that these people were victims of scams is when the police would call me. And it happened on two occasions, three, three occasions. The police would call asking about what had happened with this, uh, you know, circumstance of this Bitcoin purchase. And, and I would give them every information, everything I had. I would, you know, do everything I could to help these, uh, these, you know, I, I'm a, police accountability activists, right? Like I hold cops accountable and I'm skeptical of the police, but as far as in, you know, actually going after real criminals, I'm willing to help. And so I think that's, I, I just want to hammer that home. So like, yeah. you know, I, I think that there's like, there's probably some perception out there that you're a, you know, we, we talked about the term anarchist before and stuff like yeah. that. But like when, when the cops come around and they're like, these people have been victimized, can you help us? You're, you're like, please let me, right? Yeah, we had a 25-minute-long conversation with me and a uh, detective in Travis County, uh, Texas, that's the Austin area, that was in the discovery. The prosecution decided not to play it, and we couldn't get the detective on the phone to get him to the trial, unfortunately. Prosecution was originally going to call him as a witness, and then they decided not to because they didn't want us cross-examining him where he would admit Oh, yeah. Mr. Freeman told me everything that, you know, I needed to know. And this is one of the craziest stories. So I'm just going to get into this one because it's really important. Yeah. So Patrick Brown was the name of the man who was victimized in this particular case. And by the by the point that this had happened, this was like 2020 when this one happened. By this point, I had already learned a lot about the scams that were going on out there. And I had developed what I thought was an ironclad system for catching these things in progress. I had a bunch of questions that specifically asked like about scams that would give uh, the person that I was speaking to like a heads up, like, you know, this is what could be happening to you. you know, are these things happening to you? Like there were specific questions. And so I'm like, yeah, okay, I, I'm going to catch every one of these scams. They're not even going to try, you know, with me. And a lot of them didn't try with me. A lot of the, the only negative feedback I had on local Bitcoins was from scammers who were mad about my procedure that I that I put people through. If you ever looked, there was like a handful of negative feedback and you could tell it was from from scammers. So anyway, this guy, 
But real quick, I just want to I, I want to call yeah. extra attention. So, so local bitcoins is where yeah. most of these transactions are taking place, right? Most of them, although some of them I uh, migrated off into Telegram after you know they became regular customers. So you know to, to lower the fees a little bit, I, I I did direct. But there's a reputation system there, and the reason that these yeah. people are coming to you is because you're the reputable seller. Is, is I just literally what I had wanted. a 100 percent positive feedback rating with thousands of sales. So these people who are being rep- off by these fucking uh, sorry yeah it's, it's, <laughs> but well, it's these, your show these people i'm sorry so <laughs> sorry for the f ladies and gentlemen um and so these people who are being ripped off by these criminals are coming to you because you're the reputable seller it's just that's the, correct the yes. point that i want to they don't want to get robbed twice i guess you know so, so go ahead continue so so an account uh sends me a request and this is when, you know, you got to get suspicious, right? Whenever an account comes in, you got to you got to vet this person because the the site has scammers on it. You know there are scammers out there and you want to detect whether or not this is a scammer or is this really a person who really just wants to buy bitcoin, which is what 99% of the people on this site are doing is they're just they want to buy bitcoin in a way that doesn't involve an exchange. They just want to buy from a person. For whatever reason, they're willing to pay more for that, uh, but they just want to buy from a from a person. So, I look first at the individual's account and I see he's got some sales under his, you know, he's, he's bought a few times. He's bought several times actually from other people. All the res- responses, uh, the feedback's positive and he's got a fair, fairly high volume already. So I'm like, all right, well, this guy's bought Bitcoin before. Uh, I put him through my usual process of you got to show me ID. You got to uh, write a note, a handwritten note that says, I so-and-so am buying Bitcoin from FTL Ian on local Bitcoins. And the reason why I, I developed this procedure, it's pretty common on local Bitcoins, but the reason why it exists is because there's a scam called a man-in-the-middle attack. And uh, what what that'll do in a lot of cases, at least the ones I've heard about, they'll uh, the scammer will put an ad up on Craigslist for a car. Uh, it'll be a car that's priced really well. And uh, and then the victim, the potential victim, will contact the scammer on Craigslist, like, oh, I'll buy that car for five thousand dollars. It's worth ten, and I'll give you five thousand for it. And the scammer says, Oh, great! All I need you to do is go to this bank and deposit five thousand dollars into Ian Freeman's account, and I'll give you the key to the car. Okay. Person being a gullible individual goes and drops five grand into my account, not the scammer account, right? Um, because the scammer is buying Bitcoin and the scammer is buying Bitcoin from me using this other person's identification that the other person provides for whatever reason. And so the idea behind the, uh, the note is if you have somebody write down on a piece of paper that they are buying Bitcoin from you, then they know they're not buying a car right Right. at that point. So it, so it cuts out the man in the middle attacks. They don't even try uh, with me. So Patrick Brown, this old guy in, in Austin, Texas, he writes the note out. He holds the note up for a selfie. You got to take a picture of the note. You got to take a picture of you holding the note. So that way I know that it was, you know, you are the person who did this. And then you have to, after you send the wire transfer, deposit the cash into the account of mine, you then have to take the receipt and write something similar on the receipt. And then you have to take a selfie with that because what I don't want happening is somebody else going and making the deposit. Like, I don't want the scammer opening the trade and then having a victim make the deposit and not know that a different person who wrote the note made the deposit because, again, that's another thing that they'll do. So I had this whole procedure in place. And Patrick Brown, 
passed the procedure with flying colors, which at that point included, it didn't early on. When I first started, it was, you know, kind of fast and loose and I was doing much smaller uh, amounts and it was all cash into a bank account and there were, you know, very rarely any issues. But uh, as I started learning about the scams, I started increasing the security. So at this point, I had a whole list of questions I wanted to ask this, this guy. I called him up. I, uh, when I get a cell phone number from somebody, I'd look it up on whitepages.com. I had a premium account there. So the point of that was I don't want a scam artist giving me the scam artist's fake phone number or whatever and then pretending to be the person in the photos. I want the real guy's real cell phone number. So if the name on the white pages uh, lookup for the cell phone number didn't match the ID, no good, right? But it matched. It was his real uh, real cell phone. So I knew I was talking to the real guy. And so I asked him like the standard questions. Are you buying this? Why are you buying this Bitcoin? Oh, I want to buy it for, you know, I'm investing. I'm retired. I want to invest. Are you being put up to this by a third party? Are you under duress or you, coercion? You ask them if they're something? being put up to it by a third party. Yeah, um. yeah. And I specifically asked if he was under coercion or any kind of duress. And he said no. No, he just wanted to buy this Bitcoin for his retirement. And I said, are you... Um, and I also had a question in there about the romance scam. So it was like, you're not buying this for a husband or a wife that's online or, or whatever. Like, I, I don't remember the exact question, but it was, was some, it, something like that. This was a part of a routine or this was specific to this transaction? No, this was a routine. This okay. was something, like I said, I developed something that by that point I thought, man, I, it's this is ironclad. I'm going to catch every one of these these scammers. And he answered every question perfectly. So I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll sell you the Bitcoin. And so he sends me, you know, $98,000 or whatever it was. And I sent the Bitcoin to the address that, uh, that he provided. And, uh, and then he came back for more uh, a couple of days later and then more the following week, uh, within, within one week's time frame, he had purchased $280,000 worth of, uh, worth of Bitcoin. And I'm thinking this guy's just a, you know, a happy customer. He keeps coming back to, to buy more. He jumped through all the hoops that I asked him to jump through. And then within a matter of, I don't know if it was weeks or whatever, I get the call from the detective. And I'm like, what? This guy? And I told the detective about what had happened. And he informed me about what had really happened. And what had really happened to Patrick Brown was somebody called him up claiming to be from the federal government and I forget which agency, it was like Social Security or the IRS or something like that. One of these, you know, scary kind of federal government agencies. And they told Patrick Brown that uh, if he didn't pay up X amount of money or whatever, that they were going to do something bad to him. So he absolutely was under duress. He was acting under threat. And he did everything that those scammers told him to do, including answering all of my know your customer questions perfectly. He was under total control by these people. And that is what it turned out to be the case with these poor elderly victims in this case was they would literally do anything that these scammers asked them to do. And they were motivated by one of two things. They were either motivated by fear of like this government scam that this guy literally lost his life savings to, or they were motivated by love. So the other kind of scam is the romance scam, which maybe some of your listeners have heard of. That was probably the more common one uh, that that had happened out there. 
And those are also very, very tragic stories. But here's the other interesting it's, bit. I'm, about- I'm glad that, you know, um, I'm currently in a relationship with a woman who I met on Telegram. And mm-hmm. I'm glad that all the Bitcoin that I send to her is is well spent. I'm <laughs> kidding, obviously. But, it's sad, you know. but uh, yeah, it's true. So the, the rest of the story, and we didn't know this until the trial when Patrick Brown came in and testified. He claimed, by the way, under oath that I'd only asked him one question on the phone. And that was like, do you want to buy this Bitcoin? No, 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 no. I asked him many questions. But anyway. Uh, and New yeah. Hampshire's uh, wiretapping laws prevent you from recording that call. Can't without calls. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I never really considered recording the calls. I mean, you know, anyway. So here's the other thing that that we learned under cross-examination. Patrick Brown, I said he had sent $280,000 to me and, you know, through my accounts to buy Bitcoin. But this was part of Patrick Brown losing over $1.2 million. He spent weeks with these scammers on the phone with him, telling him what to do, telling him to move his life savings from his, uh, you know, investment accounts at like, uh, what are the investment houses out there? Um, you know, there were some big names. Um, I forget what they're called, but, you know, he he moved, uh, he tried sending wires from these accounts to these scammers and and then he had to, they closed his account, so he had to move and he had to open new bank accounts. Like, this took weeks. So he's involved in all manner of financial chicanery in order to, like, he's, 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 he's sending up red flags with his own financial institutions for his yeah. behavior. But they're still sending it out, ultimately. I mean, every one of these poor victims who sent money to me or my friends in these Bitcoin purchases were all sent by bankers. Every single one of them, all those bank tellers sent out all those people's life savings and not a question was was asked. And if they did ask a question, they went ahead and sent it anyway. Like, are you sure you know this person you're sending it to? Oh, yes, of course. And how many and years they, of the, in prison are they facing? None. Of course. Not a single not a single one of them. But here's the real killer ask, the, the real killer point about Patrick Brown's story. And it wasn't just him. This happened with uh, at least one or two other people, but he had the big, the biggest number, one point two million dollars. Where'd the other nine hundred thousand go? That'd be a where, very interesting question to answer. We asked him that question. We asked, we asked him, Mr. Brown, did the FBI ever ask you anything about the other nine hundred thousand dollars that you lost to these scammers? Guess what his answer was? No. Nope. Nope. And neither did Carlosino, who was the real estate agent who lost a bunch of money and actually ended up working with the scam artist to to uh, to help them do what they did. They never asked her about the she was working with her scammer for five or six years before she met me. They never asked her a single question about who this guy was, what was his phone number, what was his email, can you set up a meeting with him, can you have him call? Not a single thing. The FBI used every single one of these elderly people, these poor victims, who now believe I was behind this, by the way. There's these letters that are coming in from them to the to the judge. It's ridiculous. So the FBI lied to these people and they used them to get to me and my friends for selling Bitcoin. They didn't give a rat's behind. They didn't give a damn about what had happened to these people, because if they did, they would have asked Patrick Brown about the 900,000. Yeah. 
they would have asked Carla about the other hundreds of thousands or whatever that she helped uh, distribute to uh, to these guys. They didn't get a single question. I mean, that's proof positive that these people do in the FBI. They don't care about these elderly people. No, they don't. They were just a stepping stool that they used to try to put me and my friends, Ari Demetso, right now is in prison for an 18-month sentence. They used these people and they took advantage of them and they preyed on their emotions and their uh, their victimhood. And that's the real story behind the uh, the Crypto 6 case that we didn't even know about until we got these people on the stand and were able to ask them uh, uh, questions. And that... So, so you, this is not something that you even figure out in discovery. This is figured out in real time during the trial. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Because um, they never asked him about the other nine hundred thousand. That wasn't in the, dis- you know, that wasn't in the discovery. I didn't even know he had lost that much money uh, at that point. I, I know that we've we've gone well over the time that we allotted, and you've been gener- yeah. generous with your time. The transcripts are out there, by the way. Uh, the, I got the the full transcripts from the trial. So anybody that wants to spend the time, I mean, it's ten. Day, it's a ten-day trial, so there's a lot to to read through. Uh, I took the stand in the case. I I explained, you know, went through a lot of explanation, and uh, and it it was it was fascinating. Briefly, briefly describe if you would. Uh, I'll let you finish your sentence, but yeah. I I want to before we're done. I I just like you to describe the raid. You were held yeah. without bail for a period of time. I want to get to those parts before I let you go, if you could. Yeah, well, actually, I was about now to mention the raid as another thing that we learned some interesting things about. Uh, one of the things we learned was the head agent for the FBI's investigation against me, Catherine Tebow, T-H-I-B-A-U-L-T, who, by the way, admitted under cross-examination that she and her 24 years at the FBI has never caught a single scam artist despite <laughs> actually investigating scams as part of her career. Not one. That's uh, not but their she, business. She who was investigating this as the, the lead agent she wasn't there for the part of the raid, which you can see the footage at thecrypto6.com, because we got security cameras here at the house that you helped install, uh, uh, that uh, the the beginning of the raid, they roll up with two Bearcats, I don't know how many dozens of people, I was told it was like 50 uh, agents were on the scene at this uh, duplex that I live in. They uh, rolled up, and got out, and within 30 seconds, I think, we're throwing a flashbang or a smoke grenade in the backyard while simultaneously a breach team was on the front porch, smashing in windows, sending in a drone. Like they, and then the Bearcat bashes in the uh, our my my, my co-host uh, and co-defendant nobody. He lived in the other side of the house. His, his legal name's nobody for listeners that don't know. <laughs> uh, they bashed in his uh, side window with a Bearcat with a battering ram. They do all this simultaneously, just seconds after arriving. And what we learned was the warrant required, apparently, a knock or a uh, knock and announce, call call out. That was the terminology, a call out, which you've seen the movies, right? It's usually like, all right, come out. We got you surrounded. Yeah, come out with your hands up, right? Something like that, okay? Some sort of opportunity for the people inside a residence to wake up and then come outside. You can watch the footage yourself. There's nobody with a megaphone. There's nobody that's like calling out anything. Oh, we don't have audio, so we can't be 100% sure. But under cross-examination, Miss Tebow from the federal government, she said she wasn't there 
So she couldn't, she was down the street when the actual breach happened. So she couldn't testify as to whether or not there was a call out. But we played the video of the raid in, in court and doesn't seem to be that there was a call out. We didn't hear it. Now we were asleep at the time, but our friend, nobody was awake programming in the front of the house. He didn't hear a call out. Yeah. So they didn't do it. They just wanted to come in busting, you know, with all their toys and, you know, do their thing that they wanted to do. They're, so. they're, it's to create maximum fear, chaos, and danger yeah. uh, in, in a yep. situation where they know full well as a consequence of their surveillance that you're not a threat. Okay. Like, you I want to really, yeah. I really want to drive home this point. Okay. If mm -hmm. people have been paying attention to me for any period of time, they've heard me say crazy, dangerous, lunatic things, and you understand why there's an armored person with an ar-15 when they come to arrest me okay mm -hmm. that is not the case for ian freeman and it's it's upsetting i i played that clip at the beginning of the thing was like um that was from our keenvention peace round table you called That's it right where yeah. i'm like you're better off shooting it out with the cops if you're going to be facing all this time and and you're like no you know you, rather than you literally said right after that clip you're like i didn't play it because i didn't want to do it at the time but Right after what you said in the intro to the thing, you're like, you'd be better off blowing your own brains out than than shooting it out with the cops, is what you said mm. in that thing. That's right, I did and say that. And these people come in, and they know that. They know all about it, and they come mm -hmm. in, and they do this anyway because they're fucking monsters. I'm sorry oh, for the Oh, but you see, you see, Chris, it was totally justified because my roommate— had guns in the house and they yeah. knew unlike he every had... other fucking house in new hampshire <laughs> right? you know like oh well you mean the roommate that actually has a federal permission slip for the guns that he has like he's got like i think he's got like a um, suppressor or whatever and you got to have an atf permission slip <laughs> for that right like he's on the books completely with this oh you mean my roommate who's a a uh, a pet insurance salesman for his job, that's what he does, who has no criminal record, no violent record whatsoever. This is your reason that you had to do a no-knock raid in this house? Ridiculous. But eh, the jury still found me guilty on all eight counts, including four uh, counts of tax evasion after the IRS agent admitted they never sent me a single letter, after the IRS uh, agent admitted that, uh, that they couldn't say for sure whether I even owed any taxes. They found me guilty of all four of those. And then, of course, the money transmission nonsense uh, as well. There was two of those counts. So two money laundering, two money transmission related counts for tax evasion. And there you go. That's uh, 30 to 70 years in prison. One of these one of these convictions you mentioned at the beginning of the show, and just with all of that context, I just want to call our attention back to this. After the jury convicted you of one of the money laundering charges, the judge threw that conviction out because even he was like, obviously, they convicted you of a crime you didn't commit. Seven months later, he threw it out. We'd made the motion after the prosecution rested their case. And then we made it again after we rested our case. And the judge just sat on it for seven months. I'm grateful that he threw it out eventually. Um, but we'll see you know, how things go. We still want to get rid of the other seven, obviously. But uh, we haven't seen the order yet in this case. So it's a little premature to speculate on his rationale for it but the reason we we objected or the reason we uh, we put that motion is was because we said look the feds have not proven any of these eight counts not a single one of these counts have they proven so anyway that's the story for now yeah ian freeman of free talk live fame um thank you 
for being my friend, <laughs> for taking You're this welcome, on, Chris. and for being one of the kindest fucking people I've ever known. You describe me as a political prisoner on Twitter today. I've made a lot of fucking mistakes. What I did was not nice. I don't think I committed the crime I was convicted of, but, you know, you I made a lot of fucking errors. Yeah. There's a kind of a gag runs around in my circles. So-and-so did nothing wrong. Ian Freeman did nothing fucking wrong. You went out of your way to try to do everything right, and even though you 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 don't like the government's policies or whatever, you went out of your way to comply with them, and these criminals took advantage of old people and they took they re-victimized crime victims yeah, to come did. after one of the kindest people I've ever known and it's a and it's a stain on this country that that happened to you and I'm sorry and I'm I'm so grateful to you for taking the time to tell the story here tonight. Chris, I'm really grateful for you, man. Um, you know, you are a, a good old friend of mine, and and I love you so much. And you're just, uh, I know you're really just a teddy bear on the inside, and I think you're just a great guy. And, uh, you know, whatever our disagreements are, I think we'll always be friends. And I, I appreciate you so much. If there's anything I could ever do for you, please let me know, okay? Hey, uh, thanks for having me. And this was a really awesome interview, by the way. You did great. Thank you very much. I, I You're you made it very easy to do. Thank you. Hey, right, brother. Night. Have a good night. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for uh, tuning in to Surreal Politics. I'll see you very soon. And uh, sorry for the Fs.